This week on Geek Explained, it's our 100th episode. To celebrate this landmark for the podcast, this episode will be focusing on something near and dear to my heart. How I would pitch a Superman movie. It's time for a special edition of Pitch It. Welcome back to Geek Explained, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we can explain it. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is our 100th episode. We are officially in the triple digits, and I cannot tell you how excited I am about that. Um, I'll probably talk about it later when it comes to giving thanks to everybody, but just thank you guys thank you for listening to us all the way uh all the way up to this episode whether you started off with us from the very beginning whether you jumped on uh somewhere in the middle it's been an incredible ride i can't wait to see where we're going with it and this is officially the final episode of geek explained volume two uh next episode is going to be starting off volume three and i'm really excited about it um i think this being kind of a clean break for volume two with both our two-year anniversary as well as this big landmark episode for us is really exciting and even more exciting is what we're going to be talking about today which is another edition of pitch it if you're unfamiliar with our pitch it segment it's basically where i pitch my version of something i've done a spider-man film i've done a star wars story and now we're doing superman the character that i love the character that i have loved since childhood and i am really freaking excited to get into it of course we have our latest wild card weekly review as well and of course this week's comics countdown but before we get into all of that let's check in with this week's news guys and dolls so we've got some news for you but i'm going to tell you that pretty much um for the most part almost all of the news we're talking about today is going to be uh kind of subdivisions of the big news that's going on in the world right now and that is uh coronavirus covid19 has been sweeping the world and a lot has happened since we talked about it last week um, multiple cities have gone into uh, lockdown. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but it's influenced pretty much all of our life. So um, I guess I can talk about it now. The uh, We'll start off with miscellaneous news. We have our four uh, categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. So just starting off with miscellaneous, um, the whole uh, craze, the uh, corona apocalypse of 2020 has been sweeping the nation and has been hitting it everywhere. Whether you're talking about your job, whether you're talking about um, 
you know, the grocery store, whether you're talking about just the way you do things in day-to-day life. Lots of things have changed. Um, Out here in Los Angeles, it's been pretty crazy. Lots of empty store shelves, lots of uh, hysteria, lots of closures and shutdowns. Uh, Los Angeles is almost almost entirely on lockdown when it comes to large public events, uh, big events like WonderCon, which I was really excited about, E3, those have been postponed slash canceled. Um, we don't know exactly when those uh, events will be rescheduled, but a bunch of different things have been thrown all out of whack. Uh, big events all across the country have been thrown all all out of whack, and I, I guess the world too. Um, they've also shut down a lot of uh, different businesses, mostly uh, areas that they deemed, I guess, would be a higher risk of contracting the coronavirus. So they shut down schools. Um, in some states, they shut down schools for the rest of the school year. Uh, They've also shut down bars, they've shut down uh, restaurants, which means for the time being, I am out of a day job. So um, there's going to be a lot of uh, sitting at home, uh, just to, I guess, pull the curtain back a little bit on uh, on me and on this podcast. Um, I am currently uh, laid off from my day job, which sucks, um, but it does... I think overall feed into the greater good of getting people kind of to self-isolate, self-quarantine, so that we can minimize the impact or flatten the curve, as the popular saying goes, uh, to try and halt this uh, COVID-19 virus and make this as painless for the nation and the world as possible. So it does suck that I'm out of a job for a little while, but gives me more time to, I guess, take in the little things and also to be creative, which uh, was a big part of putting this episode together and really um, putting the future of the podcast together. It's going to give me a lot of time to uh, sit down, really chart out and map out what I want to do with some of uh, some of the segments of the podcast, possibly setting up um, different subjects. I might even like do some kind of new extra segment with all the free time that I now have. Who knows? Who knows? It's uh, it's a scary time, but it's also an exciting time creatively. So I hope that everyone else is staying safe and that uh, you're staying healthy, self-isolating as needed, and making sure that you do not um, bombard and hoard things from the grocery store. It has been crazy. Um, I've made, I think, two trips, two or three trips to the uh, grocery store over the past week just to get essentials, get myself ready to not go anywhere for for a while and it's been crazy it's been really crazy so i have been safely home for the last couple days as we uh kind of march along on this and i will provide uh you all with updates as i go on my life but overall messages stay safe stay indoors stay away from crowds and hopefully we will all get through this together so moving on <laughs> um, to let's do film news. Uh, multiple films because of this uh, pandemic have been postponed. This includes Mulan, Fast and Furious 9, Black Widow, and all of our favorite 
the most important and most anticipated movie for the last three years, New Mutants. That's right. New Mutants has been postponed for the fourth time in its history since beginning and uh, completing production. It just, it can't catch a break. New Mutants really cannot catch a break. So they're basically joining up um, alongside of uh, the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, and pushing their uh, releases back. We don't have official release dates for any of the films that I just listed, except for Fast and Furious 9, which is the exact same release date, just in 2021. So it's crazy. But in more positive news, uh, a couple films will be made uh on demand for streaming and uh, VOD early, such as I think I saw Invisible Man and the one that I'm most excited about, Birds of Prey. I'm really excited. I'm glad that um, they are releasing Birds of Prey for uh, video on demand early. I think it's great. I think it's a great sign that um, things might be changing when it comes to the movie viewing um status quo and it'll be interesting to see how this goes especially for um when in relation to how long this whole thing may be uh going for so that is film news with tv news it's a lot of the same Uh, a lot of production has halted on shows like flash supergirl um pretty much every single um industry or every single studio in the entertainment industry out here has shut down uh, for an indeterminate amount of time until they uh, deem it okay to continue on with this. Uh, This has also impacted stuff like Critical Role, which has uh, postponed their, or I guess has ceased their operations for the moment, and it's doing a number on the entertainment industry for sure. But um, that is going to wrap up all of the like coronavirus-related uh, stuff as we head into the comics news, which has not for, somehow been um, overly impacted by coronavirus. Um, there have been certain things that have happened, and as a quick PSA, which I will address again in uh, the comics countdown later on in the episode... Um, Lots of small businesses, small local businesses, including uh, local comic book shops, are going to be hit the hardest by this uh, pandemic and the closures and the lockdowns in cities. So if you are able to, if you are um, healthy enough, if you are able to somehow continue to uh, patron or, I guess, your local comic book shops to help them out to make sure that they stay afloat in this time of uncertainty absolutely do that so um yeah but heading on into uh comic book news we got two pieces that i really want to talk about first off we got the first couple uh preview pages for batman catwoman the new uh bat cats uh 12 issue maxi series from tom king and clay man and the previews reveal that catwoman is pregnant so we are assuming i'm assuming we're going to be getting a true blue uh helena wayne huntress later on down the line that should be interesting um but it's it's pretty cool the pages basically show off that um 
Catwoman is uh, feeling under the, under the weather. They do all sorts of tests, and Batman finds out that she's pregnant before she does. And then it's just all it's just really kind of heartwarming personal stuff. And I'm hoping that the series kind of follows suit with this kind of theme of interpersonal relationships and really making the uh, relationship of these two uh, mass crime fighters put and put it at the forefront uh, rather than making it some giant spectacle because I think Tom King really shines when he's talking about interpersonal relationships. So that was the first one. Uh, The second one is that uh, Tom Taylor has announced that Deceased is officially getting a sequel entitled Deceased Dead Planet. Um, I love that title. I love the title. It gives me uh, Dead Space vibes, and I'm really, really in for that. And so does the synopsis. So um, as you may or may not know, right now, uh, Deceased the Unkillables is on store shelves. It is a uh, three-part, kind of like uh, Deceased 1.5, talking about the lives and the interactions of the villains during the original Deceased story. Uh, Pretty much stars Cassandra Cain and Jason Todd which is a fantastic duo that we don't see often enough, and it's been great. I'll talk about it more in uh, this week's Comics Countdown because issue two does come out this week, but um, it's been a great, great little, um, uh, what's the word, subsidiary of Deceased, and it gets me really hyped for Deceased Dead Planet, which, as Tom Taylor says, and I'm going to pull up the interview here, um, it's basically the promise of the ending of deceased which if you didn't read deceased first of all how dare you second of all the story really ended with the remaining surviving heroes making their way to earth 2 to escape the pandemic wow pandemic is uh it's a word that's pretty popular these days anyway um uh, and you find out from interactions with Cyborg that they had the key to the cure in Cyborg, but because of a misunderstanding, he was killed by uh, zombie Wonder Woman, and it was pretty much kind of a hopeful slash hopeless ending for the book. Um, but in an ear in an in in an interview, I don't know why that was so hard for me. Um, Tom Taylor said that. And I quote, although the Justice League had died, I strategically created a new Justice League to take its place. The new league includes characters such as John Kent as the new Superman, Damian Wayne as the new Batman, Cassie Sandsmark as the new Wonder Woman, Mara, and others. Um, he teases a return to Earth-1, the original site of Deceased, saying, Now, five years later, this new Justice League of Earth-2 receive a distress call from their former home. They're heroes. They can't ignore it, even if they should. So, it's going to be interesting. Basically, it's going to take place five years later. Uh, this new Justice League of, you know, John Kent as Superman, Damian Wayne as Batman, Cassie Sandsmark as Wonder Woman, and the rest, uh, <laughs> including one of the best... Uh, choices in the original Deceased book, which was making um, Black Canary a Green Lantern. They are going to get a distress signal and head back to Earth-1 and just see where it is five years later. So I'm excited. I have a theory that the distress signal is going to be coming from one of the characters from Deceased, uh, the Unkillables, and that's how it's going to tie all three of those books together. But We'll just have to wait and see when the uh, conclusion of The Unkillables comes out. But yeah, so that's uh, the comics news. I'm really excited about both of the stuff we talked about here. 
but I'm even more excited for our main course of the episode, which is the entree, if you will. Um, it's the newest edition of Pitch It, where I will be pitching my version of a Superman film. Welcome back to Pitch It. This is the segment of our podcast where I pitch something. Yeah, that's pretty self-explanatory, I guess. <laughs> uh, past Pitch It episodes have included my version of a Spider-Man film, um, as well as a Star Wars story set in the far reaches of the Star Wars universe, far away from the Skywalkers and all the complications and the Palpatines and all that stuff. So um, Pitch It's pretty near and dear to my heart. It's one of the concepts that I had from the beginning, from the uh, impetus of this podcast. It's something that I, at one point, was going to be what the podcast was about completely. But having the pitch it segments every so often on the podcast really gives me time to, you know, stretch my creative stuff. And I'm excited, I'm really excited to uh, get into today's focus on our special edition, our 100th episode edition of Pitch It, which is my version of a Superman film. I'm going to put my cards on the table. I am very nervous about this, but I am excited. Um, I have, this is probably the most in-depth I've gone on a Pitch It episode, and I am really excited. Uh, Superman has been one of my favorite, if not my favorite, superheroes from the get-go. Uh, from a very young age, I've always uh, loved Superman and anything involving Superman. And so it's been kind of a struggle uh, in recent years to get excited about Superman in film. And it's sad because I think they have all the tools They've kind of always had the tools, but um, if reports are to be believed, uh, Warner Brothers just doesn't know what to do with Superman, and that really uh, that really grinds my gears. So I decided probably around like last year that I wanted to do this episode, that I wanted to pitch my version of a Superman film uh, to try and see if I could make that concept work. I've heard a lot of people, myself included, I've said this before, uh, making Superman work is not hard. You just have to... Uh, you just have to put a focus on what the character represents, which is ultimately hope. And... I decided to put my money where my mouth is and really put everything down. I've been working on this for um, probably going on six months, putting together the uh, story ideas, making an outline, putting it all together, getting it all set up here to uh, kind of present to you all. So I would love to know what you think about this. Uh, feel free to... Um, Connect with me, whether it's on social media, at Pod. that's at P-O-D on Twitter and Instagram, or through email to geeksplained at gmail.com. Um, I would love to hear what your thoughts are on this as we dive into it, and um, let's, let's go ahead. So, a couple ground rules. Um, this... Uh, this is going to be another origin story. I know origin stories are kind of played out at this point, but I don't think that... Um, 
the Superman origin story has been played out enough. I, especially in this past year when we got um, Frank Miller's Superman Year One, which is a comic that I had a lot of high hopes for and was ultimately really disappointed with, um, I still think that a Year One style story for Superman is still relevant and can be really exciting and fun. And that is what this is hopefully going to be. I'm going to try to tell the Superman origin story in three acts. Um, Act two, since it is a, it has to cover a lot of ground, will essentially be split up into two, into two parts, Act two A and Act two B. So we'll get to it when we get there. Um, couple ground rules about the world. Uh, the world is going to be uh, kind of various various eras all in one. Uh, was inspired by the Fleischer cartoons as well as the DCAU, specifically Batman the Animated Series, where they had a lot of like old-timey cars, old-timey fashion, etc., etc. But they had like new school tech, like supercomputers, cell phones, stuff like that. So it's going to be kind of in that world. It's a developing world, developing all the time. Um, a lot of uh, neo-deco art. Uh, when it comes to the buildings, you can check out the Superman animated series and the Batman animated series for kind of the vibe that I'm looking for. And then just the overall uh, look that kind of pairs with the Fleischer cartoons, which did inspire the DCAU at its core. Um, Superman. Let's talk Superman because I want to set some ground rules right away with him so that you kind of know what to expect going into the story. Uh, this is early days for Superman. He's still learning. His powers aren't set yet. Uh, if you want kind of a guideline for what his power set can be here, uh, you can read early Golden Age Superman, like very early, the first few while he was still being uh, written in written and drawn by uh, Siegel and Schuster. Uh, you can also check out, if you want to check out a newer story, uh, Superman Truth of the New 52, the arc that uh, Greg Pak did with uh, Jeff Johns and a smattering, a various smattering of artists. And then you could also check out Superman Smashes the Clan, uh, which is going to be on the list of inspirations for this story. Um, it's a great, like, bare-bones, year one, year two Superman story, and I kind of constructed it more or less, this story, so that if you watched this film, if you if you heard this story, you can dive right into... Um, uh, Superman smashes the clan and you can kind of follow along with that. So I like it. I like having a very bare bones Superman who's still kind of learning. It makes him more exciting when it comes to like, oh, what can he do? And let's learn about what he can do together with him. Uh, and then also there are no other superheroes in this world at this point. I have dot 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 yet in my notes. Um, it could absolutely open the door for other heroes. I could absolutely see at least the world in my head that I've pictured for this. Um, other superheroes could develop out of this world. But for now, there will be no other superheroes. Um, it's just going to be Clark. It's just going to be Superman in this. Uh, the story was influenced by quite a few things. Uh, when it comes to TV, I already stated uh, the Fleischer cartoons as well as the DCAU proper. Uh, films that have influenced this might not be the films that you think. Um, of course, Superman from 1978, the original Christopher Reeve Superman film. Uh, heavy influences from that. As well as Zootopia. Hercules, the animated Hercules film from Disney, and It Man. If you do not know the It Man series, 
Educate yourself. You need to check these out. They are awesome movies, and you owe it to yourself to watch these movies. And there will be some influence, especially from the first It Man film, on this as well. Uh, comics that have influenced this story, uh, Superman Secret Origin from Jeff Johns and Gary Frank, uh, Superman for All Seasons, Tim Sale, Jeff Loeb, as well as Superman Smashes the Clan, Jean-Lun Yang and Guri Hiru. Uh, just to name a few, those comics really, I think, represent Superman at his best and were definitely uh, stuff that I think influenced this and hopefully I do those stories proud. Uh, my goals for this pitch it, for this um, Superman film, is to... A, establish Superman and his supporting cast. B, establish the world. C, take both of those and establish them with a fresh take. Uh, D, open the door for further stories in this universe. And what is that? E, F, E? I think it's E. Um, just to tell a good story. I want this to be a good story. I've been working on this for a while and hopefully I told a pretty good story story with this so with all of the preamble out of the way we're almost um we're almost there i'm really excited to talk about this um i'll just be going through it act one act two a act two b and act three all the way together um and then stick around after that for a couple mid and post credit scenes so without further ado let's go ahead and jump into my pitch it for my Superman film titled Superman Tomorrow. So act one. Film opens up, sunset on Kent Farm. John Kent and 10-year-old Clark Kent are sitting on uh, John's truck bed. John is trying to console Clark. Clark is uh, 10 years old. He's been noticing things. He's been noticing how different he is. Um, and it's been... A struggle for him. He's a kid who's not just having to worry about puberty and like all the stuff that normal 10 year olds have to worry about, but also the fact that he seems so incredibly different from all the other kids and really all the other people around him. He's complaining about being different, about how hard it is, and about how being different makes him afraid. It makes him afraid to face change, it makes him afraid to face his life because he doesn't know how it's going to go if he has no one there with him and john kent who i think is someone who is vastly underrated in the in the superhero advice department uh basically tells clark that you know everything's gonna be okay like yes you're different but that isn't always a bad thing and he gives the line that i want Everyone is kind of the theme, which I think every opening scene of a film should do. The line is, though our yesterdays may be different, we all share the same tomorrow. Cut to 10 years later. 20-year-old Clark Kent, uh, farm boy and Smallville's biggest secret. Now this is going to kind of follow Clark through an average day in Smallville. Uh, Clark has somewhat embraced the fact that he's different at this point and unlike a lot of um adaptations that we've seen in the past everyone knows how strong clark is how different clark is and because smallville is such a tight close-knit community 
they're all okay with it, and they're all willing to keep his secret. Smallville is this little podunk town in the middle of Kansas, and they look out for their own. They're a community, and I think this uh, sequence hopefully will um, illustrate that. So we're going to follow Clark through an average day in Smallville, like I said. At sunrise, we see Clark moving hay bales. At one point, he lifts up the tractor. Uh, to move a hay, a hay bale that he may have forgot, showing off that he is pretty strong. Uh, the morning, he is out delivering newspapers. We see him running through Smallville. We see that he can run pretty fast. Uh, he does little leaps, like little Hulk leaps, though not as far because, you know, he's still got a little deliver papers to every house not just skip like four of them uh, at noon he's helping to replace a wheel on the neighbor's truck by of course lifting the back end of the truck with one hand and helping to put the new wheel on with the other in the afternoon clark is giving back to his community by being a crossing guard just i want this to feel like a really fun um simple life for clark in the evening uh, Clark is having dinner with Ma and Pa, just really setting up that family dynamic, setting up the fact that they love each other and they have accepted each other and that in the how scary the world can be on the outside, at least here, he has a support system, he has his Ma and his Pa. And at night, we see Clark stargazing with Lana, more on her later. Uh, and what this really does, this opening sequence, is it establishes Clark's powers. He's strong, but he's not invincible. He can leap, but he can't fly. He can hear and see long distances and pick up sounds that not a lot of people would hear. Uh, but really, overall, he's grounded and pared down. He's He's got just the essentials. This is our bare bones, Clark Kent. He's got powers, uh, but he's not invincible. Clark is comfortable. With his, with his life right now. And that's really what this is kind of setting out to do as well, is to show that Clark is comfortable with his life. It's simple and it doesn't change. And that in its entirety is really what Clark loves about Smallville. The rest of the world outside of Smallville can change all at once. Clark doesn't have to worry about that because here in Smallville, things don't change. The average day is just a repeating cycle for him. However, this doesn't... Uh, doesn't stay that way because it would be a pretty, bo pretty boring story if it did. So um, the next day, a new problem is introduced. Clark heads into town and we get our official intro to Lana. Lana, Lana Lang is Clark's best friend. Uh, she has grown up with Clark but sees the world very differently. Uh, where Clark is very comfortable with Smallville and doesn't see any need to leave. Lana is eager to get out of Smallville. She's adventurous. She wants to learn more. Um, she knows that there's a wider world out there, and she can't wait to get out of Smallville. Uh, she also wants to study journalism in Metropolis. She is... Uh, the journalism major, she has been reporting for uh, Smallville High for the entirety of their, um, of their high school career. And now that they've graduated, she wants to continue her education and continue her passion for journalism in Metropolis because it's the mecca of the U.S. It's where everybody wants to go. It's that shining city, that emerald city in the distance. Uh, so the two of them, basically they meet up. This is your intro to her character, and it kind of just establishes their friendship. However, the day 
doesn't go exactly to plan because they come to find out that the local bakery owned by uh, Pete Ross's family, which is also Clark's friend, uh, is being torn down and not torn down uh, by just any company, but a very specific company out of Metropolis. Uh, As Lana and Clark head over to where a crowd has formed around uh, these men in suits, we are given the introduction to the lead man in suit, which is John Corbin. Those of you who are longtime uh, comic book fans will know uh, who John Corbin is, and if you don't, um, hopefully this will give you some... uh, some clues as to where we're going with this character and his kind of trajectory here. Uh, John Corbin is kind of the man in charge here. He is the one who is telling everybody that the land has been purchased and is now the property of Luther Corps. Luther Corps is the big uh, global corporation that has its base in Metropolis and is kind of revealed here throughout the... Uh, angry mob that's starting to form uh, arguing with uh, John Corbin and his armed guards that Luther Corps has been quietly buying up Smallville. Different patches of it, different um, pieces of land, different businesses uh, because he can outbid them. And the tension is starting to grow as John Corbin is being just a complete ass about it, telling people that, hey, maybe if you paid your bills on time, we wouldn't be able to buy up your properties. And his condescending attitude paired with the tension in the crowd starts to escalate to the point that the crowd starts to get violent with uh, with Corbin and his armed guards. Uh, during the scuffle lana gets knocked down and that sets clark off and he we basically go into kind of our first action sequence where clark is just batting around these luther core guards um they are armed but they kind they're basically they were instructed not to fire into the crowd so they're basically um powerless to do anything as clark is just kind of slapping them around and punching and kicking and he's you know he is stronger than them but he isn't really accustomed to fighting so he's clumsy he is um he doesn't know exactly how to hit back and so the guards are just kind of being tossed around not really knowing what to do um so after a little bit of clark beating down on them they are basically forced to try and escape and clark is just zoned in because he cares so much about Lana her getting put in danger has kind of put him into tunnel vision and so he chases these guards uh, who are accompanying John Corbin down onto the nearby train station Uh, it's the only train station in Smallville and Corbin and his guards get onto the train and as they're um as the train starts to go uh Clark starts to chase harder um however he starts to slow down. He's not quite as fast as this train. And as we see here, Clark still kind of has a way to go when it comes to his powers. He's still learning and he's still learning what his limits are and how he can push them. As the train is kind of sailing away, Corbin kind of recomposes himself and he shouts that it doesn't matter that Clark beat up the guards because Luther Corps still owns the land and the building that uh, Pete Ross's 
family's bakery used to be on, they're going to come back. Fighting doesn't stop Luther Corps because Luther Corps is bigger than one man, regardless of how hard he can hit. And as Clark realizes this, he slows down to a halt and the train sails off down the track and into the distance. It's here that Clark really kind of realizes that he's powerless to stop this and he's powerless in essence to stop change uh clark is kind of distraught and he makes his way back to uh the spot where the crowd was back to lana to check on her make sure she's okay um and as they are kind of recomposing themselves luckily lana isn't too badly hurt uh ma comes through the crowd ma finds clark and they find out that during this scuffle in their day-to-day stuff clark's whole um schedule was thrown off so he wasn't able to help out his paw on the farm like he normally is and basically during this whole fight that clark was having Pa had a heart attack clark couldn't hear because he was distracted by the fight and now Pa is in critical condition so we move on over to smallville medical center which is basically just a local doctor's office uh Pa's alive but because of his heart attack he's in a coma and of course clark blames himself he basically sees that he uh, got too focused on trying to hurt people to recognize that he needs to help people and he wasn't able to help his pa and so he blames himself for pa being in the condition that he's in um while kind of recounting ma with the events of the day what happened ma reveals that she knows about Luther Corps and that they have been trying to buy Kent Farm for a while now. Um, they tried to keep this news from Clark, not to worry him, because they know that he is really accustomed to his life in Smallville and they didn't want him to worry. Um, unfortunately, Kent Farm is behind on payments like a few other businesses in Smallville and Luther Corps is set to buy it up in two weeks if they can't come up with the money. Um, So Lana arrives at the uh, medical center just after Clark has this bomb dropped on him. He doesn't know what to do and he fills in Lana with what's going on and Lana reveals that after the scuffle, she went to the local library and she did some research into Luther Corps. Uh, They find out that Luther Corps is based in Metropolis. And from there, Lana concocts a plan. The plan is to go to Metropolis, convince Luther Corps leadership to leave Smallville and save the farm. Um, It sounds pretty simple. Uh, Most of these stories kind of start off with a simple premise, but it's the only plan that they've got. Uh, Lana also reveals that Lana has a contact in Metropolis that can help them navigate the city, uh, kind of find the ins and outs, and help them get to where they need to go. Uh, Clark doesn't want to (laughs) go because he doesn't like the idea of leaving Smallville, especially when Pa is in uh, critical condition. But Ma convinces Clark to go because A... um, Pa is where he's going to be. They aren't moving him. Um, his situation really is going to be what it is, regardless of whether Clark is there or not. And she thinks that 
And she basically says that Lana can't go to this giant city on her own. She needs a friend to go with her. Uh, so she convinces Clark, look, I know you're scared, but let's do this for the farm. Let's do this for Pa. So the next day, uh, Lana and Clark pack up Pa's truck. Uh, this is the truck, the same truck that we saw at the beginning. Pa has had this truck from very early on in his life. Uh, he got it right before he was shipped off to uh, fight in the war. And he has had it ever since. Ma has given the keys to Clark and Lana, basically tell them that it's the most reliable thing that they have and that it will get them to to Metropolis safely. Metropolis is super far away. That's why normally the only um, way to get there for uh, transit and whatnot is by train. But Ma gives, you know, this wink and says that, this truck's going to be more reliable than that train ever will be. So as they're packing up, um, Ma gives Clark his lucky blanket. And Ma kind of reveals to us as the audience that as a kid, when Clark was scared, he would tie the blanket around his neck to make him feel hopeful and to give him hope and to make him feel stronger. And Ma gives Clark the blanket in hopes to uh, give him courage in this scary time. Uh, so that's it. They say their goodbyes. They say goodbye to Smallville for now. And Clark and Lana head to Metropolis. And here we get a nice little montage. I think it should be accompanied by the song Send Me On My Way, uh, because I have an endearing love for that song. And I just think it works so well on a traveling montage. So the montage basically consists of Clark driving, uh, Lana driving at some points. There's parts where Lana, I have this vision in my mind where there's a shot where Clark is driving and Lana is seen kind of asleep in the passenger seat with Clark's blanket over her. It is a red blanket and it's exactly what you think it is, but uh, we're going to get more into that later. And as they head off over the course of this montage, them traveling, uh, going through all the fun and not so fun parts of a road trip, we see that after a little bit of time, Metropolis is finally here. Metropolis is on the horizon. So Act 2, specifically Act 2A, um, mostly from um, from a script writing standpoint as well as just a plotting standpoint when it comes to fiction, um, Act 2 has to accomplish a lot when it comes to uh, telling a story. So most oftentimes um, Act 2 will be split into two parts, Act uh, 2A and 2B, uh, which is basically what we're going to be doing here. Uh, 2A is kind of, I've seen it described as fun and games, I've seen it described as the promise of the premise, and that's really kind of what we're going to try and accomplish here. So Act 2A, where um, Act 1 was titled Yesterday, Act 2A is going to be titled Today. So here we are, we're in Metropolis, Clark and Lana arrive, and they are immediately caught off guard because Metropolis is the complete opposite of Smallville. Uh, Skyscrapers, bustling streets, loud noises, the city is the complete opposite of Smallville in every single way possible. It is loud, it is um, 
vibrant and it is really really scary <laughs> to clark um it's basically metropolis is everything that we kind of expect it to be it's an industrial marvel uh it's got trains it's got planes it's got automobiles it's got the whole deal um including the big train system that kind of uh goes around the city uh clark is immediately hesitant he doesn't know um, about this city but lana is in love she is immediately smitten with metropolis being exactly how she pictured it and so she is just lit up she is bright she is bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and she is just taking in the city uh but they don't have a whole lot of time uh the trip took a while and so um they're on a ticking clock from the beginning of the story they had two weeks and around now let's say it took about two to three days to get to metropolis by truck so they've got a ticking clock so they have to uh get this ball rolling and their first uh goal their first to-do list is uh to meet lana's contact which brings them to the daily planet clark and lana come to the daily planet and it is exactly what you picture the planet being the bullpen is loud people running all over the place it's got the big globe on the top of the building and we get our introduction to lana's contact which is her cousin jimmy olsen i know i know it's a change um typically lana and jimmy don't really even know each other but in this story i think it works they're both redheads uh they both uh, accomplish different things and there's no reason that they couldn't be um be related so for the purposes of this story in this universe for this superman uh lana and jimmy are cousins and so we get this introduction to jimmy olsen who is at current time a daily planet intern with dreams of being their lead photographer uh jimmy olsen is everything that you expect from your common millennial uh he is in love with the past but is also looking towards the future he's a tech geek and he's always trying to find he's always trying out new and experimental tech even if the market research has not been done yet on it and him being at the daily planet and being in the employee of them helps him to get in on the latest tech to find out stuff and try it out for um for his own purposes he loves just finding new stuff and he knows the city as good as anyone he's been there for years and he is their best bet on navigating the city and making their way to luther core so during this whole uh daily planet sequence jimmy introduces lana to perry white the editor-in-chief uh perry is just everything that you expect perry to be uh, he's loud he's abrasive but he is um he is sympathetic to lana wanting to be a reporter and you know they click and they hit it off right away uh so jimmy is introducing lana to perry white while clark is distracted by the tv perry doesn't meet clark here and clark is distracted by the tv because he has glimpsed his first uh viewing of luthor luthor is uh holding a press conference and immediately what keys clark in on them needing to go to this press conference is right on uh luthor's side is his right hand man john corbin the man who uh, they clashed with earlier in the story um 
Perry notices that the uh, Luther or press conference is going on. He wants photos and Jimmy volunteers. He's basically, he sees this as his chance to let Perry White know, hey, I'm serious, I'm a photographer and I can do this. So Lana and Clark decide to tag along. Clark never meets Perry here. Uh, that's important. <laughs> and um, th because this is their opportunity to confront Luthor and really um, let him know, hey, this is what's going on with your company. Like John Corbin is trying to do all this stuff and try to appeal to him to um, stop whatever Luthercore is doing in their town. So they head outside and they find out that the truck is gone. Clark left the truck unlocked because at his heart he is a Smallville uh, small town farm boy who trusts way too much. He left the car or he left the truck unlocked and it is gone. Uh, Lana gets a little panicked here. Uh, this is the first time that the uh, plan has kind of gone off the rails, and she is kind of ill-equipped, and so she's getting a little frustrated, a little um, frantic. Uh, but Jimmy has a solution, and he whips out his new watch. Now, this is basically your standard Apple Watch, but again, this is a different universe, so this is still, like, experimental and untested tech. Uh, he says, you know, this watch has an app. I can call a cab here. So he is like, okay, it's got to be, I think it's this button. No, wait, it's this button. And he ends up trying to hit a button on the, we'll, we'll call it a uh, Cord Industries watch, and it malfunctions, resulting in this really high-pitched whistle, uh, which Clark immediately is just taken aback by. It causes him discomfort, and he's, like, really... It's basically the equivalent of, like, a dog whistle. Super high-pitched, only Clark can hear it, but Lana notices that Clark is feeling some discomfort, and so she shuts off the... Uh, she manages to shut off the watch and ends up calling a cab old-fashioned style, and they all hop in the cab and they head off to this press conference. So at the Luther Corps building, um, we are basically given the introduction to Luthor. Uh, he's giving a press conference on uh, Luther Corps' recent troubles in the business world. Uh, stocks have been steadily those just slightly uh declining there's rumors of unrest and rumors about luthor possibly losing control over the company however luthor stays calm and collected he is not a man to be trifled with and he gives the air that everything is under control uh Lana, Clark, and Jimmy arrive and they are listening to the questioning going on here and Lana butts in to some of the reporters asking questions and she asks about Smallville. She asks what he knows about the um, about the move into Smallville, about Smallville being quietly bought up. No one in Metropolis has heard of Smallville, so they have no idea what this uh, what this strange girl is talking about. And Luthor seems really caught off guard too. Um, he is suddenly like, wait, Smallville like what do you mean and it's kind of gives the idea that Luthor may be unaware of what's going on and kind of feeds into this idea that he's slowly losing ground within the company uh Corbin 
immediately jumps on this. He ends the press conference and escorts Luthor away. Uh, Clark tries to talk to Luthor, but he's cut off by other reporters who move past him and are able to get closer to Luthor because of their press badge. So they realize, and Clark realizes, that the only way they're going to get in the room with Luthor is with a press badge. So they head back to the Daily Planet where Lana and Clark... Uh, are kind of at their wit's end. They don't know what to do. And later on, they are in uh, Jimmy's apartment, this rundown studio apartment in the heart of Metropolis. And Jimmy and Lana come up with a plan. The Daily Planet needs an exclusive with Luthor. He's one of the most elusive figures in Metropolis. No one can get a straight answer out of him, whether it's him only calling press conferences when needed, uh, Corbin kind of running interference anytime that someone tries to get too close or ask the wrong questions. And so they need to get an exclusive with Luthor himself. However, the Daily Planet's top reporter is out on assignment out of town at the current moment, and none of the other reporters in uh, the Daily Planet have the clout to get in the room with him to get him to request an exclusive with them. On top of that, Perry only takes the best when it comes to reporters. And so Lana comes up with this idea that they are going to create a reporter. They are going to create a super prodigy reporter who will get them in the room, not just with Perry, but later on with Luthor. However, Jimmy points out that Perry's met Lana. And so them coming up with this idea to create a new reporter for them to dazzle Perry and get him to get her on the team isn't going to work because he's met her. However, he didn't meet Clark, and Clark didn't make an impression on him. So Jimmy and Lana choose Clark. So Right around here is where we head into the fun and games portion, where we go about creating Clark Kent reporter. And I have those in quotations. Um, so basically what they do to begin setting this up, this is essentially another uh, montage here. Uh, Jimmy is using social media and his tech know-how to set up Clark as a reporter, sending in, you know, different, uh, setting up, social media for him setting up you know a presence online using his connections to up his follower count up his uh his social media clout as it were um and jimmy also has an in at daily at the daily planet to get clark's foot in the door so once they get all of that together uh jimmy's gonna make the um the introduction meanwhile lana to back up all of um jimmy's building up of his supposed history as a reporter, Lana writes up articles on stuff that either weren't covered or were only covered by small newspapers such as her basically covering stuff from Smallville and from other parts of the world to really get Clark uh, some articles under his belt. We find that Lana has the voice that we need writing up these articles. Clark really doesn't have um, 
that kind of technical know-how. He tries to write an article or two, but he's not good at it. But what he does have is a viewpoint, and Lana is able to use Clark's unique viewpoint on the world as someone who is different, experiencing things around the world from a different point of view, and is able to elevate their articles in that way. Um, meanwhile, both Clark and both uh, Lana and Jimmy, excuse me, are going to work on Clark's image because they have to make Clark look like their classic version of a, of a reporter, but have him fly under the radar enough so that Perry doesn't recognize him as the lumbering oaf that was with Lana when she met Perry. So what they do is they focus on an old school fashion sense. They give him the old school blue suit. They give him the little trilby hat. Uh, Lana gives Clark books on acting because at, as well as being a journalism major, she also minored in theater. And so she gives him books on acting to help the illusion, helping him learn how to hold his body a different way, making him slouch, making him basically uninteresting. But at the same time, they really want him to be sold by his writing and by his reporting. And as they're putting everything together, this whole montage is going on where they're setting up Clark Kent, the reporter. Lana finally finds the last touch, which is these glasses that they find at, in Jimmy's apartment. They put the glasses on and voila, we have Clark Kent, reporter. As this time goes, we find out that this takes time, obviously, so days have passed, and at this point, one week has passed, and they only have one week to go. So Lana does some further research on Luthor over the course of this time, uh, and finds that there are rumors of Luthor uh, losing ground in his company. Uh, the board of directors might be going rogue, possibly led by Corbin. Uh, she also discovers that uh, there have been unsubstantiated reports and possible connections to illegal activity from Luther Corps, and they realize that Luthor may not really be in on all of the stuff, especially if he's being slowly pushed out by the board of directors, which may have been led by Corbin. So they need to dig further, they need to explore, they need to expose the Luther Corps execs, specifically John Corbin, and they realize that Luthor, if they can get in the room with him, might actually be an ally to help them save Smallville. So over the course of all this stuff, they finally got all their, um, they've all got all their um, stuff together. They're ready to debut. They just need a big snappy article to get, uh, to get Clark in the door with the planet. So Jimmy gets a tip off from a from a source, we'll call him Bibbo. <laughs> Longtime Superman fans know exactly who that is. Um, so Jimmy gets this tip off that there's a shady arms deal going down tonight, and it could be related to some of the illegal activity that Luther Corps has been accused of. So the group decides to go and get evidence against Luther Corps, and if they can catch Corbin there, then they can expose him for the uh, the terrible person that he is. So this brings us to um, our next big set piece, which is the raid. I have it listed as the raid. Um, Clark, Lana, and Jimmy head to this um, old unused warehouse uh, downtown in Metropolis. They find that the warehouse is f 
or was formerly a Luther Corps subsidiary, but that it has been unused for a while now. Jimmy and Lana show up in their stealth clothes because over the course of getting Clark all of this uh, new wardrobe to set him up in his new persona, they were able to buy um, stealth clothes. So they show up in their dark clothes, uh, their beanies, the whole deal. They are kitted out to be stealthy. However, Clark, Clark didn't pack stealth clothes. P- Clark didn't have any... <laughs> um, Anything other than primary colors, because that's all that he's really worn in Smallville. So Clark shows up to this uh, stakeout in a blue work shirt, basically a blue uh, sweatshirt that he has left over from high school, which has the Smallville High logo emblazoned on the chest. Now, this logo is the original uh, S-Shield from uh, Action Comics number one. So that's the symbol that it... that it kind of represents it's the gold shield with the red s on it um this is important uh he also is wearing his his normal blue jeans got some patches on the jeans and he is wearing pa's old work boots which happen to be a pretty nice shade of red so we're setting up clark uh to wear essentially what is a proto version of a superman costume um he immediately when he arrives uh, Clark or uh, Jimmy and Lana give him grief on not, you know, packing and or getting stealth clothes. And Clark just he doesn't know. He doesn't know any better. He's never done this before. So um, Clark still commits. He's like, I'll stay back. I'll kind of be in the background. You guys can do your thing and I will um, I'll back you guys up. So they head into the warehouse and they find that there is an arm still going down. But Corbin is not in attendance. So, they decide to split up to look for evidence. So, the three of them split up. They're making their way through the warehouse while this deal is going on. Uh, Lana finds firearms. She she finds stolen property, etc. Jimmy decides to get a closer look at the individuals who are taking part in this arms deal. And somehow, as they are looking through this warehouse, Clark finds Pa's truck. Somehow, of course, one of the unsavory individuals is the same individual that stole Clark's truck earlier in the week. So Clark is immediately like he's rifling through the truck. He's like making sure stuff isn't stolen, including this big uh, chest in the truck bed that is near and dear to Pa. It's got all of his old mementos. Um, And luckily, they are all still there. Everything is still in the truck as they left it. However, um, this really heartfelt reunion is kind of uh, is put on hold for the moment because Jimmy tries to take a picture of the individuals at the arms deal and is unfortunately not able to turn the flash off because of reasons. <laughs> so um, the thugs get a get a tip off that Jimmy's there uh, just as Lana makes her way to him. The two of them are discovered by the, um, by the thugs and are taken aside and captured. Uh, Clark in a panic knows that he has to go save them, but he doesn't want to uh, reveal his face. He doesn't want to get caught. So he digs into the chest in the uh, truck bed and pulls out Pa's old uh, World War II flight cap and goggles. This is a direct rip from uh, 
Superman American Alien and say what you will about the person involved in creating that story but I have always loved the the visual of Clark in a flight cap with goggles so I have completely ripped that and thrown it on here so uh, to recap, Clark is now wearing this flight cap and goggles to hide his identity. He's got the blue uh, sweatshirt sh sleeves rolled up with the Smallville High logo, which is the gold shield with the red S on it. Blue jeans, worker jeans, and his pa's old red boots. So Clark bursts through the warehouse to save Jimmy and Lana and battles with the thugs. Now this is important because once again, just like the uh, fight in Smallville, with the initial armed guards from Luther Corps, uh, Clark can't be hurt here. So what we need to do is raise the stakes, and we do that by pointing out that, yes, Clark can't be hurt, but Jimmy and Lana can. So Clark is essentially battling these thugs, tossing them around. We're getting just spectacle when it comes to Clark just flipping people, throwing them, kicking them aside. Um... Clark is battling these thugs while also protecting Jimmy and Lana because unlike the uh, guards in Smallville, these thugs are armed and they are firing their guns with reckless abandon. So Clark is having to balance both taking these guys out alongside protecting Jimmy and Lana from the gunfire. So he's throwing them around, disarming them, breaking their guns, and then we get this great moment here where there is a moment where time kind of stands still for Clark. There's this errant gunfire and a bullet is heading straight for Lana. And it's this, you know, time stands still. Clark sees the bullet heading towards Lana. And for the first time in his life, he's able to run at the same speed. And with the added incentive of wanting to save Lana, he runs as fast as he can and bear hugs Lana to block her from the bullet. And the bullet hits him and there's this moment where he's standing you know arms wrapped around Lana back to the uh, thugs and they hear a clink 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 Clark opens his eyes and he turns around and he sees the bullet which has been scrunched up laying on the floor because Clark up until this point has never been shot at he doesn't know that he's bulletproof, so he dove in front of Lana to save her regardless of his own safety because that's the kind of person that Clark Kent is. And so there's a moment where everyone is just kind of like taken aback, where Clark is like staring at the bullet, um, camera pans back and shows like the little hole in uh, Clark's sweater. It would have been dead pan right in the middle of his back, and this bullet bounced off of him. So... They realize in this moment uh, that he is bulletproof, and Clark proceeds to subdue the rest of the thugs, chucking them around, tying them up, and basically taking them out of the game. So he subdues the thugs. Jimmy calls the police using his uh, connections to the Daily Planet to get them to come quicker. This is important. This will be used later, so write this down. <laughs> However, uh, there's no evidence linking... Uh, linking Luther Corps or John Corbin to this warehouse besides that it used to be a Luther Corps subsidiary. And the three of them leave with the truck, and this is a moment where the three, our three heroes leave this scene and leave this um, portion of the story changed. Uh, 
Uh, Jimmy has gotten the rush of finally being in the field, finally being important, using his photography to actually do something rather than dream about it. And in this instant, he leaves feeling inspired. Uh, Clark has used his gifts successfully and made a difference using them. Unlike the uh, harsh reality that he was given in the... Uh, in the beginning, when he ran off the uh, Luther Corps guards and wasn't able to use his gifts to actually enact change, this one he was able to make a difference. And so he leaves feeling proud. However, Lana has gotten the first taste of dangers outside of Smallville, and this has left her a little disillusioned with this perfect idea of Metropolis. Because Lana, just like Clark, has never left Smallville up until this point. And so everything that she has had all the ideas that she's had of the outside world, of Metropolis in particular, have been this kind of idealized version. And this was really the first instance where she kind of realizes the world's a little scarier than she initially thought it was. And so this sets everything on a collision course as we kind of wind down this act, or this part of the act. Um, the next day... Clark Kent, and again, I have those in quotations, debuts at the Daily Planet with the story on the previous raid, on, on the raid the previous night. Sorry, words got tripped up there. Um, this article also loosely attaches Luther Corps and John Corbin to the crime. Uh, meanwhile, Jimmy shares photos that accompany this story. Um, photos of the warehouse, of the contraband, of the thugs, and accidentally also includes a photo, a blurry photo in motion of Clark fighting these thugs. Of course, the um, flight cap is obscuring his face, but the very distinct red boots and blue shirt are fully on display. Perry, uh, after doing the usual social media checks and finding this supposed history of Clark Kent as a underdog reporter making his way all around the world, um, is convinced, and he welcomes Clark onto the team on an interim basis because, as we've stated before, his lead reporter is on assignment and he needs someone with Clark's grit and determination to get a big story. Uh, Clark is given a desk temporarily across from this missing top reporter. This will be important later on. And basically, Perry gives Clark the mission that if Clark can get the planet, the big news story, this story that will put them back on top because the planet has seen that with the um, kind of uh, rise of Luther Corps as an, as an entity and the kind of reclusion of Luthor as an individual, that news on him and really on the city as a whole, because ultimately Luthor Corps does run Metropolis, has slowed. And so he's trying to get the next big story to put the Daily Planet back into the uh, public consciousness. So he basically tells Clark, if you can get me the next big story, the next breaking news, I'll offer you full employment. This is going to be an interim basis for now, but you're on the team. And while Perry is giving Clark this, you know, this incredible golden opportunity, Clark or uh, Perry is, you know, siphling through the photos and notices the photo of Clark versus these thugs. And as he starts to give it a look, Clark, Jimmy, and Lana realize what he's doing, and Clark has to distract him. So he trips, hits his face on this brand new desk that, um, 
that uh, Perry has given him using the pratfall method as given to him in one of the acting books that Lana gave him and basically sets up this um, this accident to distract Perry long enough for Jimmy to steal back the photo. This is where we establish the clumsy reporter aspect of Clark Kent's identity. And Perry, you know, doesn't give it any mind. Uh, so the Daily Planet publishes Clark's story on page four. He hasn't earned front page news just yet. And once again, the article points the finger for this arms deal, as well as linking numerous others that have happened throughout the city and have been kind of written off, attaching them to John Corbin and Luther Corps as a whole. Uh, the article that, since Perry is an editor, also mentions the mysterious strongman who threw around these thugs during the during the raid uh, so in response to this a day passes and luthor himself requests an exclusive interview with clark kent and here we wrap up part two act two a and we head into act two b which i have titled twilight so act two b uh, normally with uh, 2A being kind of fun and games or the promise of the premise. Uh, 2B involves, you know, 2B is typically, you know, the villains close in. This also involves the midpoint of the film and gets you set up for Act 3, the climax. So 2B here has the midpoint, which is this big interview scene with Clark and Luthor. Um, so we start off 2B with... Clark and Lana heading over to Luther Corps for the big day. Uh, Lana is prepping Clark. She's quizzing him on the questions that he's going to ask, all the while making sure that he's staying on topic, making sure that he is presenting himself in the way that he presented himself in writing. And Clark is nervous. He is very nervous, but he knows that this is his chance to save Smallville. And he also knows that time has passed and they only have two days left. They only have two days left to save the farm if they aren't able to convince Luthor, hey, all this, you know, really shady stuff is happening in your company and it involves buying up my entire uh, town that they might lose Smallville. So lots of pressure on Clark. Um... But he is determined to make this work. So the two arrive at Luther Corps. However, only Clark is allowed in. So Lana isn't able to back him up with anything, but she trusts him. She knows that he, uh, he knows the questions he needs to ask. And she, you know, gives him the thumbs up as he heads into the elevator all the way to the top floor for his meeting with Luthor. And so this brings us to the big interview. Clark steps out of the elevator and finds himself in this lavish office at the top of the building. This is the highest skyscraper in Metropolis, and the office just looks extravagant. Um, and it is all kind of wrapped up with this large window at the far end of the office, which looks out and gives a top-down view of the city from Luthor's perspective. Luthor is expecting Clark and is facing out of this window with the view to the city with his back to Clark. And this is where Luthor delivers his big monologue to really get us in the uh, 
mood of what he is going to be about and what the scene is going to be about. Uh, Luthor talks about him remembering, you know, th- this used to be just a township. This used to be the township of Metropolis. And it, it had dreams of building itself up into a shining beacon and the shining beacon that it is today. And he talks about how I watched this city grow and blossom. And you know who was responsible for all that? This city blossomed under my watchful eye and the watchful eye of the Luthor family. However, the city is ungrateful to him and the people who are in power seem to be ungrateful to him. This results in rumor and hearsay that could tarnish reputations of lesser men. And this rumor and hearsay results in children pointing the finger at the adult in the room. Luthor turns to Clark, and it's pretty clear the, uh, the insinuation here that Clark is the child and Luthor is the adult. But with this tense moment, this tense pause, Luthor gives him a smile ask Clark to sit down, and the two sit down. And Luthor, full head of red hair, he's aged. Uh, he's, I would say, probably um, at least 25 years older than Clark. So he's in his mid-40s. Uh, this is the Luthor that is cold, he's calculating, but he can ultimately have the capacity to do good and wants to see the city blossom as much as it has under his family. Both men take their seats, and the the interview officially begins. Clark turns on his recorder, and Clark starts to kind of go over Luthor's history. Uh, The company, Luthor Corps, uh, Luthor inherited from his father, who nearly ran the company into the ground. Uh, His father had focused the original Luthor Corps on real estate buying up as much land as he could. And Luthor, when he got the company from his father, shifted the focus from real estate to tech and urban development. And the first big um, first big project, the first big success story of this new Luthor Corps at, after Luthor took over the company was the train system that we now see all around Metropolis, and it was really the catalyst for the urbanization and the modernization of Metropolis into the shining city that we see it as today. However, lots of people, you know, your average man on the street, sees Luthor as the relic of a bygone time because he is unwilling to change his ways. Luthor is dead set on who he is and how he did things, and he is unwilling to change. This has resulted in lots of rumors in the company and in the wider media that Luthor has had numerous disagreements with the board of directors on the direction of Luther Corps going forward. The executives, the Luther Corps board of directors, want to move the company forward once again from tech and urban development into military contracts. But Luthor is outright refusing to do that. He believes that the key to Luther Corps' success is not moving forward, but staying exactly where they are. However, underlying all of this, there are rumors that a mysterious third party has been buying up the remaining stocks in the company from this board of directors, and pretty soon may have enough uh, power within the company to push Luthor out. Uh, This raises the possibility of a hostile takeover, and it's 
sort of implied that Corbin might be this person, that Corbin has been scheming behind Luthor's back and has been steadily accruing power within the company to push Luthor out and to take over, because Corbin seems to be very in line with uh, the board of directors' vision. He wants to move to military contracts, he wants to leave tech and urban development behind, and so even though Luthor brought John Corbin in, brought him through the system, and essentially almost raised him like a son, Corbin seems to be scheming against him. Luthor kind of changes subject at this point. He doesn't want to talk about Corbin. He doesn't want to talk about the rumors that he might lose the company. And so he shifts his focus to Clark. So he asks about Clark's background. Where are you from? What are you doing? You know, what's your what's your background? And this is kind of the moment where we see the stark differences between Clark and Luthor. Clark did all of this research on Luthor. Luthor hasn't thought a day about Clark, besides the fact that he wrote this article slandering his company. Clark doesn't want to go into his background too much because he doesn't know if the uh, if his you know recounting of his history might conflict with the complicated backstory that Lana and Jimmy have concocted for him. So he turns his tape recorder off for the moment. Clark mentions he's from Smallville, and Luthor is surprised. He's like, I've been hearing about that lot a lot lately, and he reveals Luthor does that he grew up in Smallville that. Even though the Luthors are kind of the big mafia Don family in Metropolis, they have humble beginnings. Luthor was born and raised in Smallville, and he left Smallville to take over Luther Corps' company, or to take over his father's company, which is Luther Corps. Um, he was essentially raised by his mother. He never really knew his father, and that that kind of put a wedge between them, and it ultimately resulted in. Luthor doing a hostile takeover to his father to take over the company and push it forward. However, Luthor kind of has a, just in the same way that Lana has this idealized futuristic version of Metropolis in her mind, Luthor has this idealized, you know, moment in time version of Smallville. He longs for the simplicity of Smallville and for a bygone time when things were easy to him, when things made sense to him and there wasn't all this uh, political backstabbing and all of this, you know, complicated stuff that has somehow made its way into his company and into his day-to-day -day life over the years. And it's really here that we figure out as an audience that there are a lot of similarities to Clark and Luthor. Both are afraid of change, neither of them really wanting to do anything to perpetuate that change unless they are brought into it. Both of them left Smallville to come to Metropolis. For Luthor, it was to um, essentially take his birthright, and for Clark, it was to save his home. And Luthor, in this way, kind of presents a cautionary tale for Clark of how the city can change you. Clark has gotten this idea that Luthor is very similar to him, and that at one time they, you know, they may have been friends if they'd grown up together, but that the city has kind of changed Luthor, and that the city seems to be moving on past him. So Clark kind of gets comfortable with Luthor, knowing that they come from the same kind of background, and so he reveals the truth. He's like, you know what? Aside from this, I I really want to talk to you because Smallville 
is in danger. Smallville is in danger of being bought up by your company. Your company has slowly and quietly been buying up different pieces of Smallville, and they are at risk of purchasing my parents' farm. My family's farm is at risk of being taken over and turned into some kind of factory. And he points the finger at John Corbin. He's like, this is the guy. Like, you're worried about him taking over your company. Like, he is already moving past you and doing these things that are trying to take over, you know, stuff from your past. It makes sense. You know, Corbin wants to get a foothold on Luthor's past so that he can facilitate Corbin's own future. Luthor takes a moment, takes all of this in, and he looks at Clark and he is like, I'm going to be frank with you because I feel like we've had this conversation. We've grown closer. You know about me and now I know a lot about you. And he reveals that I am slowly losing the company. This third party has been buying up the contracts, the uh, stocks from board members and other stockholders. And because of that, I've had to change up my strategy. I'm shifting my focus back to real estate as kind of a last resort to get back to really what the core of Luther Core is. And he reveals that because of this, their initiative going back into real estate, looking back towards the past, brought Smallville back to his attention. Corbin isn't responsible for buying up Smallville. He is. He's buying up Smallville and other townships like it to escape change. He wants to go back to... Um, to the simplicity of his past, and he will start fresh. He's going to start new. He's going to buy up all of these pieces of his past or things that are similar to it and start from the ground up again. Along with that, Corbin is not responsible for the illegal activity. He is just the front of it. Luthor himself is responsible for the illegal activity. He made the shady dealings with these gangs, like Inner Gang, like other um, thugs and mafias in Metropolis to send enforcers to enforce these purchases. That's why these gun-running deals have been going on, and Corbin has been his spearhead with the promise that once... Uh, Luthor has all of the land that he needs to start his company over, he's going to hand over the reins to Corbin, and he's going to start fresh, starting with his new base in Smallville. And he's been using this early development of military contracts that the company has been purchasing and starting to move towards to recruit members of Inner Gang and really use them as bargaining chips to get their influence. And so this is really when we reveal that Luthor really is the villain of the story. It's not just John Corbin. It's Luthor, as it kind of always was, and I'm sure you would have guessed that by now. But um, this is really Luthor. It's that classic story of Clark versus Luthor. And so Luthor vows, he's like, I'm going to buy Smallville. In fact, I'm going to hold a press conference because if I remember correctly... I'm getting it in two days, so I'm going to hold a press conference tomorrow. 
and I'm going to let them know that Smallville is going to be my new base of operations. I'm going to tear the city down, and I'm going to build up my own new base. And there's nothing that Clark can do about it. And when Clark tries to argue that, wait a second, no, I, you have, I have your confession. You're on tape. And Luthor reminds Clark that, no, you don't. You stopped the tape recording as soon as we started talking about your past. And Clark realizes he's got nothing. He's got nothing. Luthor's confession is, at this point, hearsay. There's nothing he can do. So Clark, he's just, he's been outplayed, he's been outmatched, he's been outwitted, and he is escorted out by Luther Corps guards. And this is really when we hit um, rock bottom for Clark. Uh, Clark reconvenes with Lana outside. Uh, he's been completely destroyed by the news of of Luthor basically being the one true uh, villain behind all of this. And when he finally is able to catch up with Lana, he's he's disillusioned. He's disillusioned. He's depressed. He's crestfallen. He's lost. There's nothing that they can do about it. Lana kind of takes this and she mentions, you know, I guess maybe we should just, we should go back to Smallville and try to, you know, get things ready to move once Luther Corps moves in. And Clark is taken aback by this. He's like, no, like we can't, we, we have to do something. Like, I don't know what we can do, but we have to do it. We have to change this. I don't know how we're going to beat him, but we need to beat him. And Lana, like, she's like, we lost, dude. You know, there's nothing else that we can do. And Clark, even though he has been dealt, you know, this big first loss in their mission to save Smallville, he's still high off of the success of the raid, you know, the raid earlier in the week. And he, you know, believes, like, I can do this. I can figure this out. I can save Smallville. I can save the farm. And Lana's like, you don't have anything. You don't have anything to bargain with you don't have a way to expose luthor you don't have a way to expose corbin you don't have a way to save smallville and clark lashes out at lana and he calls her out for being scared basically saying like you don't want to be here anymore you don't want to save kent farm you don't want to save smallville you're scared and you just want to go home and lana bounces right back and accuses clark of being changed by the big city she's like when we came out here, you didn't want to come out here. You don't. You didn't want to do what it took to save Kent Farm. And now that we've done everything, you just want to jump blindly into some other scheme that won't work. And she starts to like really kind of zero in on the fact that you've changed. And Clark get, just gets hit by this realization that he has been changed just like Luthor. And there's nothing that he can do about it. And the two, you know, after having this angry argument, they separate. Lana's like, I'm going to take a walk. I'm going. And Clark is just kind of left there as the sun goes down and it starts to rain because, of course, it does. Um, Clark wanders through Metropolis in the in what the... Um, script writing calls uh, the Dark Knight of the Soul. This is the lowest point. This is rock bottom for our heroes. And this is kind of where we start to ramp things up towards the next act. And so Clark, you know, wanders back through uh, 
wanders back through small or uh, metropolis because lana took the truck uh clark makes his way back to jimmy's apartment and finds that lana isn't there lana basically packed all of her stuff up and she's gone already so clark doesn't know what to do because he has no evidence he doesn't have Lana here to, like, guide him, and Clark now has to face a crossroads because he did get some info on Luthor for this article, even though it will be hearsay, and, you know, there's nothing that he could really prove. He needs to get the word out as a journalist and as a reporter. It's that uh, journalistic integrity that Lana really kind of instilled in him over this process. Um, so Clark has two options. He basically says that he basically has one of two options either a uh, he finds lana rejects change and he goes home where it's safe or b he writes this article exposes luthor accepts change and tries to move forward and so he's kind of sitting in jimmy's apartment he doesn't know what to do and that's when jimmy kind of you know walks in and he's like hey you know lana said that she was leaving like are you leaving too and clark's like i i don't know i don't know what to do i'm lost and he fills in fills jimmy out on what's happened and jimmy is you know kind of takes it all in he lets clark explain and explain kind of where he's at everything that's happened and clark you know laments that he doesn't know what to do and so jimmy basically says you know i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you a little story i'm gonna tell you a story and so Jimmy reveals his past, his backstory. So Jimmy reveals that he was born in Manhattan to terrible parents. <laughs> um, his father was an investment banker, and Jimmy, in the the latest in the long line of Olsons, uh, was expected to follow in his father's footsteps and take over his company when his father was ready to step down. However, Jimmy wasn't like his siblings. Jimmy wasn't like his father or his father or his father's father's father. Jimmy wanted to be a photographer, but he was always afraid to take the leap. And ultimately, he had the choice to stay comfortable in the life that was set out for him, the life that was essentially safe, never changed, and didn't have to introduce any kind of uncertainty. However, Jimmy chose to take the leap. He chose to take the leap and be a photographer. He chose to be someone who takes risks rather than be someone who he's not. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, Jimmy Olsen accepts change. He is constantly adapting and moving with the city and with his own life. And he wouldn't change any choice that he's made because without those choices and accepting and embracing change he is he wouldn't be here and ultimately fly or fall you know it was his choice to become a photographer to move from manhattan to metropolis without a penny to his name to really build himself up and he delivers the line that is ripped from one of my favorite childhood movies the iron giant where he says you are who you choose to be if you choose to be someone who is afraid of change, that's okay. But you can also choose to adapt with that change. You can choose to look to tomorrow because today might suck. And 
this really kind of gives Clark that rallying, you know, that that uh, that boost in morale that he needed. And Clark decides to write the article. He's going to accept change, and he is going to choose to move forward. So he lets Jimmy know, I'm going to write this article. I'm going to figure this out together, you know. I'm going to figure out a way to save Smallville. I don't know how yet, but we're going to figure this out. And Jimmy, you know, basically says, okay, you know what? I am going to go find Lana, let her know what's going on. And we are going to, you know, we're going to figure this out. Meanwhile, (laughs) we catch up with Lana heading to the train station. She has her bags packed. She's ready to go. Um, But as she arrives at the train station, uh, she sees a familiar face down near one of the uh, one of the further parts of the train station and she recognizes John Corbin Luthor's right hand and the man who really kind of kicked off all of this and she decides that I'm gonna follow this you know she she can't fight her journalistic integrity and she can't fight this um, this inherent curiosity and so she follows Corbin and as she does, she follows him deeper into the uh, train station and comes across some shady thugs loading up arms, illegal contraband, and other stuff. Corbin, you know, meets with these thugs and she overhears them basically talking about Luthor's involvement in all of the gun running and illegal activity through Corbin. And it's, you know, Corbin kind of reveals to these thugs that Luthor, even though he put on a uh, brave face he was spooked by this interview with Clark if Clark some nobody from Smallville can figure out what's going on then it's only a matter of time before a more skilled reporter gets in and is able to expose him so they need to get rid of all the evidence of his illegal activity before someone finds him out so they're going to load up all of the evidence they're going to put it on this train and they're going to get it all out of the city train leaves at 8 a.m. It's going to be on an exclusive Luther train, so no one will be on board. It'll just be this evidence. They're going to get it out of the way so that Luthor can hold on to it in a safe location. At this point, Lana is found by Jimmy, who has tracked her down, and Lana concocts a plan. She's like, okay, so you and me are going to sneak on this train. We're going to take photos, get evidence, find a way to stop this train. We're going to expose Luthor, and we're going to save Smallville. Lana, even though she is at her lowest point, has not given up. She is still, she has her sense of adventure. She has her sense of wanting to save Smallville and in an effort to basically prove Clark wrong that she hasn't given up, that she's not afraid. She is going to save Smallville, whether with Clark or without Clark. However, the two are discovered sneaking onto the train as they try to and are captured. And unfortunately, Corbin smashes Jimmy's camera. And that is the end of Act 2. So, Act 3. We're heading into the big the big climactic ending of the story. And so Act 3, Act 1 was titled Yesterday, Act 2A was Today, Act 2B was entitled Twilight, and Act 3 is Tomorrow. So the next morning, Clark wakes up, having fallen asleep writing the article. Article's pretty much finished, including all of the info that 
Clark really can't back up, but he fell asleep writing this article, and he realizes as he's waking up that Jimmy and Lana aren't there. So Clark, you know, realizes, like, you know what, they're probably, you know, out doing something. Maybe, you know, Lana left and Jimmy is already at work. Um, I need to figure this out. I need to finish this article and I need to get this um, finished so I can bring it to Perry. You know, sink or swim, fly or fall, I'm going to get this to him. And so he takes another look at the article and he realizes, you know, the roadblock that he ran into when he fell asleep. It's basically that he can't figure out how Luthor makes these deals without the police discovering them. He doesn't know how Luthor gets contraband in and out of the city, and he doesn't know how to connect the dots to put plainly on paper that Luthor is doing illegal stuff. And then he finally has a light bulb. Light bulb goes off, he makes a realization as he's going over his notes, and he realizes that Luthor's, and he remembers, and as he's playing the tape back, that Luthor's first big project, the one that put him on the map as the new leader of Luthor Corps, was Metropolis's train system. And regardless of how many years have passed since he set that up, Luthor still owns this train system. Luthor Corps execs the department, or the um, director... The board of directors, excuse me, um, are more interested in weapons, not old systems. So they basically give him free reign of this train system. Luthor has free reign over all of the transit when it comes to this system. And because Luthor has such a hard time moving past his set-in-his-ways mindset, this is the only thing that he would trust to get contraband in and out of the city because he established it he can move freely through this system without interference because he owns it and then clark you know another light bulb goes off clark does some research and the warehouse that they did the raid on earlier in the week used to be an old train depot and that's how luthor was able to get stuff all of these um all these arms deals were made at old Luthor train depots that have been shut down for whatever reason, and Luthor is able to get all of the stuff in and out of the city through this train system that he owns. So Clark realizes if he can find contraband on a train or a uh, or an in-use train depot and link it to Luthor, he wins. So he calls Lana, he's like, I have, I have a way. I have a way. I can do this. So he calls Lana. He wants to tell her his plan. And what he doesn't realize is that Lana and Jimmy are still being held captive by Corbin and his thugs. And so Lana's phone rings. And while they are being held captive, Lana manages to answer it and tells Clark, we're, we're on a train. We're on a train. We're about to head out of the city. The train leaves at 8 a.m. Clark, Clark looks at the clock. It's 7 55 and so he panics he doesn't know what to do um I, I i how am i supposed to help and lana's like i don't know but we're on a train you need to get here all of and she basically you know informs him like all of the stuff is on this train we need to you need to save us and at that moment one of corbin's thugs discovers lana with her phone steals it smashes it line goes dead Clark jumps up, doesn't know how to start. He has kind of, you know, what I guess could be described as like a small panic attack. He doesn't know what to do. Um, he knows that 
he needs to save Lana and Jimmy. He doesn't know where to start. And he's, you know, looking around the studio apartment to try and, like, find something to focus on to figure it out. And he sees the blanket. He sees the blanket that his mom gave him laying on the futon. Because they've been staying in Jimmy's apartment, which is a studio apartment. And they don't have a whole lot of space. So, and Lana's been using it essentially as a blanket to sleep in. And Clark looks at the blanket and he remembers that Ma, what Ma said, that as a kid, when he was scared, Clark would tie the blanket around his neck and it would make him feel strong and it would give him hope. And so Clark pulls on his Pa's uh, work boots, the red work boots, puts his you know high school sweater on, gets on his Pa's old uh, flight cap and ties the blanket around the neck. And he says to himself, fly or fall. And so he opens up Jimmy's window and leaps into action out the window. Basically, um, like George Reeves style from the old school uh, Superman uh, series. So he ties, like I said, he ties the blanket around his neck, fly or fall. And he jumps out the window. So meanwhile, at the train station, Corbin addresses uh, Jimmy and Lana basically tells them that you've made this complicated, but in a way you've made it simple as well. We're going to be sending this train off, and the two of you are going to be on it. Jimmy and Lana will be the only passengers. Corbin then reveals the truth that we sabotaged the train. We realize that, you know, this is going to be a loss of, um, of our contraband and our, uh, our bargaining chip for inner gang and other... Uh, high-ranking members of the mob in Metropolis, but Luther has got a lot of money. It's not going to take him, you know, any kind of... It's not going to put any financial burden on him to get more. So what they're going to do, they're going to sabotage the train. It's going to go off on... It's going to go off an unfinished track far out of the city, and there's not going to be any survivors to tell the tale. So Corbin puts both of them on the on the train. They go off. Clark arrives to the station just a second too late, and he doesn't know which train to go after. But as the train passes Clark, Lana sees Clark out the window, and she's like trying to get his attention, but she can't. And the train, you know, moves by Clark. He doesn't know what to do. There are so many trains at this station, he doesn't know which train to follow. Jimmy starts panicking. He's like, how's Clark going to find us? Like, there's no way. Like, there are so many trains leaving here. What are we going to do? Train's picking up steam and speeding up. And then Lana remembers the first day in Metropolis. She remembers meeting Jimmy. And so she looks at him and she says, do you still have your watch? And Jimmy like looks at him. He's like, yeah, I wear it ev- everywhere I go. Watch the bow tie. That's what I do. Like, that's my thing. And, <laughs> and so Lana is able to wriggle out of the uh, confinements that she was uh, put under. And she grabs Jimmy's Cord Industries watch and hits the button that sends out this high-pitched signal. That's right, signal watch. I got a signal watch gag in here. I just, I just, I, I, I love this. I love, I just, I love this. So the signal watch um, 
sends out this high-pitched whistle that only Clark can hear, and he hears it, and he focuses in on it, and he sees, or he is essentially able to trace this whistle and this sound to the train that Jimmy and Lana are on. So Clark picks up speed, and he begins to chase the train. So this is it. This is the climax of the of the whole story. I basically, when I was putting this together, I saw this as essentially the essentially Superman Returns meets Spider-Man Two. The plane catch meets the Spider-Man Two uh, train scene. So that's kind of what I took as inspiration heading into this. Clark chases the train on foot, similar to earlier in the film when he chased Corbin and his thugs onto the train. He can't catch up, and he's too slow on just on foot, so he begins to leap. He starts leaping, just like he was earlier in the film, but this is more Hulk style. This is him just leaping and covering lots of ground, getting higher and higher as he leaps further and further. And it takes multiple leaps to reach the train to even, you know, catch up to it because it's going pretty fast. And what we have to remember here is Clark is untested. We don't know. We know he's strong, but how strong is he? And he doesn't know that. He doesn't know if he can stop the train, but he's going to try. Regardless of whether in his mind he knows he can stop this train, he has to try. And that's so essential to Clark's core character that even through uncertainty, he's still going to try to do the right thing. So Clark makes all these leaps. He finally reaches the back of the train and is able to grab on to the back car. And he's, you know, plants his feet and he tries to slow it down, uh, but it doesn't stop the train. The train's too powerful for him. So it starts like, all it's doing is uh, Clark is breaking up the track underneath his feet. It's kicking up debris and some of the debris kicks up and smashes right into the goggles that Clark is wearing with the flight cap. And he can't see, he can't see what's happening. Clark eventually is knocked backwards by being unable to stop the train. So the train, you know, continues on and Clark is left in a crumpled heap near this broken track. And so he kind of, you know, staggers to his feet, composes himself, tears off the uh, flight cap and kind of, and you know, kind of tosses it to the side. He doesn't, he's not going to, He's not going to be able to do anything with that still on. So he sees the train off in the distance. He stands back up, takes a deep breath, and he starts, you know, kind of getting himself ready again. He starts kind of hyping himself up. And he's like, you know, come on, Smallville. Come on, Smallville. Come on, Smallville. And he leaps again through the air towards the train. Meanwhile, on the train, Lana and Jimmy are successfully able to free themselves and they make their way out of the rear car. So as they start to move up through the train into the middle section of the train, uh, they start to find more of the contraband and the evidence in the cars as they proceed through it. Clark, after a few well-placed leaps, finally leaps back onto the train once again and is able to land right on top of the rear car um, and slowly starts to make his way on top towards the front. Uh, he has to find Lana and Jimmy. That's his goal right now. The train doesn't matter. So he finally is able to meet up with Lana and Jimmy halfway through the train. Uh, he's basically, <laughs> the way I see this is the train is going. Lana and Jimmy are kind of making their way through the car. And they see Clark's head just kind of like poking on the other side of one of the windows. And so 
Clark, you know, is kind of shouting as the train is going on. He's like, Lana, Jimmy! And they turn and they see him, spooks them for a little bit. And uh, Lana reveals to Clark, like, the contraband's on the train. The evidence that we need is on the train. We need this train intact. And so Clark's like, okay, we gotta stop this train somehow. Um, I was, you know, I don't know what to do, but we're gonna, we need to find a way to stop it. So they decide they're gonna split up. Trio's gonna split up. Lana's gonna try to go to the front car to engage the emergency brakes. Jimmy is going to go to the communications car to get in contact with the police to let them know what's going on. And Clark is going to try and stop the train from the outside, just in case that Lana isn't able to use the emergency brakes to stop the train. It's going to come down to Clark. So as they're concocting this plan and they all split up, we pull back to outside of the train and we see that off in the distance, the unfinished track and the cliff heading off of it. So it's a ticking clock. We've we got to ratchet up the tension here. So as they all split up, Clark gets an idea. So he's going to detach the non-essential cars to slow down the train. So he heads back to the rear car, which didn't have any of the evidence in it. And it was just holding uh, Lana and Jimmy at the beginning of this. And he decides, you know, I'm going to detach this car to try to slow it down. If I can segment the um, the cars, I can slow the... I can slow the train down without having to damage it. So he heads back to the junction point between the rear car and the next car. And he tried to wrestle the mechanism open, but it's stuck. And so Clark's like, okay, um, I got to figure this out. Uh, I'll kick it. Because Clark, at his core, is a dumb farm boy. And he is just going to try whatever he can to get this done. And so he kicks the mechanism, and it buckles a little bit, so he's like, okay, I gotta do this again. But he kind of misjudges how hard he needs to kick, and he ends up kicking the mechanism completely off, which gets stuck under the track. The rear car does get detached, but because it gets stuck under the track underneath the rear car, it gets flipped up and crashes off to the side as the rest of the train rolls on. And Clark's like, shoot. <laughs> Like, I can't do that for these other cars, so it this isn't going to work. Meanwhile, Jimmy gets to the communication car, but he doesn't get in contact with the police. Cut to Perry White's office at the Daily Planet. He gets a call from his secretary, basically saying, hey, there's a coffee on line one. And I just see this, you know, Perry is just kind of sitting in his office. He's like, hello, silence on the bit. And then Perry jumps out of his chair. He's like, you're what and you're where? Cut to Lana who has arrived at the front car. Brakes are broken, just as Corbin said, but the emergency brake is still intact. However, with the, uh, with the main brakes completely broken, the emergency brake might not be strong enough alone to stop the car. So Clark finally arrives at the front car on the outside of the train and lets Lana know like, hey, what's the situation, what's going on? Uh, Lana informs him like, I'm going to use this emergency brake, but I don't think it's going to stop it. So we set up that Clark has to stop the train. Lana's going to assist and do whatever she can with this e-brake, but ultimately it's going to come down to him. Clark takes a deep breath. He's never done something like this before. He doesn't know if he's more powerful than a locomotive. So he sits on the top of the train as it's going. He looks out into the distance and he sees that they're nearing this cliff edge. And so he takes a deep breath 
and he slowly starts to ease himself down to the very front of the train on this uh, lead car. And so he slowly eases himself down halfway, takes a deep breath, and slides all the way down to the, of the front of the car, turns around and pushes as hard as he can against it, and he is immediately flattened by the train. He is just, you know, flattened up against the train. He is not strong enough just at this moment. And he is just, like, being... It, it's that classic, like, cartoon... Uh, cartoon image of being, you know, stuck. The cartoon character is, like, flattened on the front of the vehicle. Like, that's exactly what's happening here. And so Clark is just, like, flattened against the front of this uh, train car as the uh, train continues to roll on. Clark slowly is able to, you know, recompose himself and recover, and Lana is just shouting, he's like, dude, you can do it! As she's, like, yanking on this emergency brake as hard as she can. Clark, you know, kind of readies himself as he's being pushed along by the train, plants his feet, and he pushes, extending his arms out, and he pushes as hard as he can. The track, just like when he was trying to pull from the opposite side, is breaking up underneath him but he is pushing as hard as he can to stop this train. Lana's pulling on the e-brake, the brakes are engaged, but there's still not enough to stop the car. Clark is pushing and pushing and pushing with everything he has. You know, the, his cape is just, or his, you know, his blanket is tied around his neck, it's flapping in the wind, his you know, muscles are straining as hard as he can, his sweater's tearing at the seams. Uh, this is not working. The train is slowing down a tiny bit, maybe, but it might not be enough. Lana glances up, sees the cliff edge in the distance, and she realizes they're not going to make it. Clark is shouting. He's at this point where everything comes down to this. His entire life comes down to this. He has to stop this train. Everything's been building to this. This is the moment that he needs to use his gifts for the greater good. And so he's he's pushing, he's shouting, he's desperate. And this is when the beginning notes of the Superman theme. And as we see all the rest of the sound kind of goes out, Clark gets that moment in time once again. And as we see him extending his arms out, pushing against the front of the train, we start to see his feet slowly begin to lift off the ground. The train finally starts to slow down as Clark pushes and pushes and pushes as hard as he can. Right as it reaches the cliff edge, Clark shuts his eyes and... He opens them. The train stopped. Clark has his hands just pushed up against the train. The train has finally come to a stop. He looks up into the windshield and he sees Lana, hands still wrapped around this e-brake, just staring out at him. And she's slowly, she's exhausted, just as out of breath as Clark is, but she slowly lets go of the e-brake with one hand and points out to Clark. And Clark, you know, kind of gives her a weird look. And as the camera slowly pans back, we see that the train is at the very edge of the cliff, and the very front of it is actually hanging off the cliff. And Clark is floating off the edge. 
Clark is in a full horizontal position, just floating there in the air at the edge of this cliff into this canyon. So this kind of, you know, puts plants the seed that Clark has the ability to fly. He's not there yet, but he has that in him. And so Clark takes a breath and he pushes the train back a bit off of the cliff edge and towards, you know, safety. And he, once he's able to finally get the train into a safe position, his feet slowly lower and he lands on the ground. Lana and Jimmy finally make their way out of the train to and rush out to meet him, and Clark just collapses. He has put everything that he has, all of his strength, pretty much his everything, into stopping this train, and he is just exhausted. Lana and Jimmy catch him, and they the free the three friends embrace as you know Clark you know kind of falls to his knees. They did it. They saved the train. They saved each other. And that's when they hear sirens in the distance. We find out that Jimmy called Perry to get Metropolis PD on the uh, on the scene because Perry, you know, is the lead. He's the editor in chief of the leading news organization in Metropolis. So sirens are in the distance. Metropolis PD uh, got Jimmy's message, and they are heading out to the train. Uh, Lana kind of laments that, yeah, we've got the evidence and stuff, but we don't have anything to attach this to Corbin and Luthor. We don't have any evidence. And that's when Jimmy reveals, well, maybe we do. And Jimmy unclips his bow tie to reveal that there's a prototype microphone in the bow tie, and it recorded Corbin's confession about the contraband in the city. Just like his watch, Jimmy is always prepared, and that is the mark of a good photographer. The gang then notices that the police are getting closer, and as the police cars start to arrive, Lana tells Clark, like, hey, they're going to link you to the raid. Like, you need to get out of here. Like, we will deal with the police. We'll let them know everything that happened, but you got to go. And so Clark slowly, you know, makes his way back to his feet, takes a deep breath, and just as the police cars arrive, Clark leaps away. He hasn't mastered this whole floating thing yet, but maybe one day he will. Later at Luther Corps, Luthor is giving the press conference that he promised to Clark about new ventures coming to Luther Corps. He is shifting focus when it comes to the company back into its roots, back into real estate, and is about to mention the acquisition of a few new townships that will be the start of this new venture for Luther and his company. And amidst the sea of reporters, one voice stands out. Do you have any comments? Luthor looks, as do other reporters, and they see Clark Kent, Daily Planet reporter. He's got the whole getup, suit, glasses, trilby hat. And Clark makes his way through the crowd to the front and Clark then asks Luthor to comment on the train being found and members of inner gang, including Luthor's right-hand man, John Corbin, being identified and linking it to Luthor. Luthor's dumbstruck. Clark smirks as the sea of reporters, like, move in. They're like, you know, piranhas on fresh meat in the water. Like, they just, they swarm in on Luthor, who realizes he's lost. And Luthor slowly reaches up to point 
at Clark. Clark is now the change coming to Metropolis. So as we wind down here, uh, we get a couple um, quick cuts to different uh, moments happening. Uh, Luthor and Corbin are indicted. Uh, their business ventures are halted, which includes uh, buying up all of Smallville. And Clark is officially, after breaking this story, given a position at the Daily Planet, and because of this, he can help pay the bills for the farm, and his signing bonus allows for them to catch up on their current bills. Uh, news coverage is also uh, widespread in Metropolis of the mysterious strongman saving the train. Uh, eyewitness reports inc include the mention of a distinctive red cape, and because his first target was Luthor, who is now known to be corrupt, he is being identified as fighting for social change in the city. Jimmy Olsen, because of his work in exposing Luthor and helping Clark to get this scoop, is promoted from intern to Daily Planet photographer officially. Jimmy has finally flown. Firefall, Jimmy has reached his dream. This all brings us back to Smallville. Pa finally wakes up from his coma and wakes up to find everyone. Ma, Clark, Lana, Jimmy, Pete Ross, everybody is around there to greet him as he wakes up. And time passes and we find out that Clark is moving into an apartment across the hall from Jimmy Olsen. So we cut to probably like Maybe a week or two later, um, Ma, Pa, and Lana are helping Clark move into this new apartment. Uh, Clark is saying his goodbyes to his parents as they climb into their truck to head home. But before they do, Ma reaches further back into the truck and hands Clark a package with a wink. Lana then taps on Clark's shoulder. Clark turns to her, and it's kind of revealed that Clark is going to be staying in Metropolis. He's got the job now, he can send his checks back to Ma and Pa at the farm, but Lana is returning to Smallville. And we find these, we find our two heroes having been changed by this whole ordeal. Clark realized his fear of change was holding him back, and now he wants to help people, no matter where they are, and he can help people equally, both as a reporter and now as this new vigilante as this new strongman, while Lana realized that she really loves Smallville. She just wanted an adventure, and now that she got it, she's okay with going back to Smallville. And now, she wants to bring adventure to Smallville. So, they hug, they talk about, you know, Lana can come visit Clark whenever, and Clark can do the same. Uh, Lana gives him a quick peck on the cheek and wishes him good luck on his big first day. Cut over to the Daily Planet. Clark is settling into his desk, which now comes with a new fancy name tag. And he's, you know, looking at it, he's all proud. And he sets the name tag down and he looks across at the empty desk that has been empty this whole time. And he sees that a new intern is dusting his desk buddy's, his desk. Buddy's desk. Uh, specifically, dusting the name tag, which reads Lane. Daily Planet's top reporter is finally returning from excursion, and she expects her desk to be immaculate, so this new intern has been tasked with making that happen. 
he introduces himself to Clark. Clark, you know, introduces himself and they kind of talk about, you know, hey, you're new here. And he's like, yeah, you know, I just moved. Um, Clark basically asks him, you know, what do you think of the city? What do you think of Metropolis? And the intern kind of admits, he's like, you know, I'm a little intimidated. I come from a smaller town called Keystone. Um, I honestly, I feel a little lonely and kind of afraid of how different things are out here. And Clark smiles at him and he repeats a line that his pa once told him. And he says, our yesterdays may be different. We all share the same tomorrow basically gives him hope that hey you know things are strange right now but change isn't a bad thing and he recalls another intern who turned out all right and is now the lead photographer for the daily planet and he basically tells this intern you know make sure if you have any questions come to me ask jimmy we're here to help you and speaking of which at that moment he sees out of the corner of his eye jimmy near the uh, stairwell leading up to the roof. Jimmy, you know, flashes him a thumbs up, shows off his new camera, and motions to the roof. Clark, you know, says, well, well uh, it's great to meet you. Look forward to working with you more. If you'll excuse me, I've got an appointment to keep. He gets up and he pulls open one of the uh, desk drawers and he pulls out the package that Ma gave him. Up on the roof, Jimmy is testing out the camera, taking pictures of the globe, taking pictures out on the city, and Clark steps out from behind the globe, and he is dressed in his new costume. Jimmy says, nice outfit. Clark smiles, and he says, thanks. My mom made it for me. Costume is your classic Superman costume. The red blanket has now been repurposed into a genuine cape. Uh, he is wearing the trunks. Uh, that is non-negotiable. This is a kind of update on a classic um i do have this drawn up so i may or may not uh release the picture that i've drawn up for how i kind of figure this would look because i have his uh original like his proto suit drawn up as well so i might drop those on the uh, geeksplain instagram and maybe on the twitter we'll see uh after this episode gets released but so it's basically it takes inspiration from that proto suit he's got the red boots uh the blue bodysuit, the red trunks, uh, the shield, the S shield, has been modified from the Smallville High logo uh, into what most people would, uh, I guess, call the Fleischer logo. It's my favorite Superman logo. It's incredible. And this is my Superman suit, so that's the symbol he's going to be wearing. <laughs> but um, it's, you know, otherwise, it's your classic Superman suit. And we realize that they that Clark and Jimmy have convened on the roof of the Daily Planet to introduce Clark's new persona to the world. He can't just be this, you know, mysterious strongman going around. He wants people to know that he's here to help, and he wants to um, enact change within the city. You know, Luthor's gone, but for how long? And that doesn't mean that the city's ultimately just fixed right away. He's going to have to continue to work at it to enact change and to really help others so what they're planning on doing their plan is jimmy is going to take the first big picture of this new individual and clark is going to write the story up introducing this new character to metropolis and really to the world um, this next bit is uh one of my favorite bits in the comics that i've ever read so um 
they get themselves ready to take this picture and Clark, you know, stands. He's kind of awkward. This new suit is a little tighter than he was expecting it to be. But, you know, he's standing there. He's got his, you know, um, hands clasped together at his hips, you know, arms in front. And he's looking kind of awkward in this new suit. And Jimmy's like looking at him with the camera up and he's like, ah, this isn't working. This isn't a good shot. And then he lowers the camera and he looks at Clark. He's like, maybe you could like do like your fists, like hands on your hips, maybe. And Clark is like, oh, oh okay. And he puts his hands on his hips and he's like, oh, I, this feels kind of weird. Clark and Jimmy's like, no, 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 this is great. This is awesome. And he puts the camera up and we get to our last shot, which is Clark in the lens of the camera. And Jimmy says, have you thought of a name yet? And Clark thinks about it for a second. And he looks straight at the camera. And he smiles. Credits. So that is Superman Tomorrow. That is my pitch it for a Superman film. I do have two post-credit scenes. Uh, the first scene is a mid-credit scene. So let's dive into that. Uh, the mid-credit scene starts up essentially where the film ends. Uh, it's front page of the Daily Planet showing the picture that Jimmy and Clark took. And the headline reads, Superman, Man of Tomorrow. And... We kind of pull back from this and we see that someone is reading the paper from from on a uh, beach chair on a sandy beach with, you know, margaritas and stuff on a side table. This, it's basically shot from behind the beach chair so we don't see who's sitting in the chair. Um, this person is greeted by a butler of sorts and the butler basically kind of catches him up on everything. He confirms that uh, Luthor to be specific, Lionel Luthor is behind bars. And as a result, his remaining shares went up and you now own 100% of Luther Corps. Man the chair stands up. We see a characteristically bald head. He has his back to the camera. And he says, you know, we, we, gotta, we gotta do something about that name. Luther Corps sounds too, uh, too old-fashioned. Butler says that the media want a statement. They want a statement from the new owner of whatever this company is going to be called, especially that Spitfire from uh, the Daily Planet. She really wants a an exclusive with Lex Luthor. And Lex slowly turns, and we see Lex Luthor in all his glory, and he grins, and he says, looks like the prodigal son is coming home. And that's the end of the mid credit scene. Now the post credit scene... Uh, is back on Kent Farm. Uh, Clark is visiting his parents and, you know, just checking in and seeing how things are. They catch up on, you know, their day-to-day -day stuff. Um, Clark mentions he met a girl today and he's, you know, pretty uh, pretty excited about it. Uh, Ma and Pa are, you know, are, are listening to him, but they seem kind of like their thoughts are elsewhere. And Clark kind of mentions, he's like, are you guys okay? Like, you seem like you got something on your mind. Ma and Pa look at each other and they decide, you know, the reason for, uh, for your visit, the reason that we wanted you to come visit is uh, we have something to show you. So they bring Clark out to the barn. They open up 
the barn, they go inside, and they open up the basement doors. These are doors that Clark was instructed as a child to never go near, never open. Uh, They're always chained shut with a padlock. But Pa produces the key, unlocks the padlock, removes the chains from the door, and he opens up these basement doors in the middle of the barn to reveal a rocket ship. Clark has never seen this before. He He's just taken aback by this. He's like, what is this? And Ma and Pa reveal to him that when we were young adults, we were driving home from a date and we saw a rocket ship from the stars crash into a nearby field. And inside that ship was you. And Clark is just blown away by this. He's just, he's speechless. He's like, I, I'm an alien? Pa says, you know, I, I wanted to wait to tell you until the time was right. And I feel like now that you've gone off into the world and you're helping people and you're finding out who you are, that maybe this can help. And I was waiting for the right time to show you, but this can't wait. Because a week ago, the rocket started beeping. Regardless of who you are, where you come from, someone or something knows you're here now. Clark turns towards the rocket, and the final shot of this is of the rocket. And inside the cockpit, you see this steady red light beeping. Beep, 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 beep. And that's where it ends. Now, this kind of opens up the door for a lot of possibilities. Um, for future stories going forward on this, this could, uh, intro- you know, this could be the backdoor for Kara. This could be the backdoor for Zod. This could be Mongol, Rogozar, any of those characters, any of those more space-bound characters. Because I feel like once you've established Clark and you start to kind of get into his... Um, his origins as an alien it opens up a whole world of possibilities so that is uh that is it um thank you very much for listening to my pitch of superman uh like i said this is very near dear to my heart i have been working on this for a really long time and um i think this strikes the right balance between you know dealing with stuff from today while also really kind of getting back to the core of the character. He's hopeful, he inspires hope in others, and he ultimately wants to help people. He's a friend. So, um, yeah, that's my pitch it for Superman. Um, I'm really proud of it. I'm really excited that I uh, got to share it with you all. And um, I'm not sure if I would rather this be like an animated movie or like a live action film. I think it could technically work with both. But um, I didn't do really any kind of fan casting just because I really wanted to focus on the story. And sometimes, especially me, when I'm like getting into this stuff, like I, um, I put stuff together. I do like fan casting and pitch it stuff all the time with, um, uh, with my good brothers, uh, Jacob and Andrew. Shout out to you guys. Um, and I get really, really in the weeds when it comes to fan casting. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to focus on the story. And I think I think it's a, I think it's a good story. So um, that does it for the uh, special edition of Pitch It. The main themes of the film ultimately are about embracing change. Um, that was a big thing for me coming out to uh, Los Angeles. I kind of... Um, it, 
really at times felt like I was moving from Smallville to uh, Metropolis just because where I moved from, Tucson, Arizona, um, is very different to Los Angeles. So I kind of wanted to tell that story because that spoke to me. And I would love to hear um, your thoughts on this, the idea of change, the idea of kind of being afraid of huge changes, but embracing them and looking forward towards tomorrow. Um, The big uh, Pa Kent quote that is quoted twice in here. um, Let me find it again. Uh, Though our yesterdays may be different, we all share the same tomorrow um, is a quote from Jean Lun Yang. He is the writer of Superman Smashes the Clan, which was probably my favorite Superman story of the past like 10 years. Um, I'd, ha- I'll, I'd have to like really think about it. But um, yeah, it's, it's an incredible story. And when I was putting this uh, together, I was kind of looking for that, that, that hook, you know, that big, that a uh, big pocket quote. And uh, reading the final issue of Superman Smashes the Clan, this was right at the end, and I just, like, it was a light bulb. I was like, that's it. It's got to be the one. So, um, yeah. And I think it's a good, I think it's a good uh, thesis to hang the story on about all of us being different. uh, However, we all share the same tomorrow. I think it's a story and a lesson that can be taught and is especially important in times like these when, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and there's a lot of um, uh, unrest in the world. And ultimately, at the end of the day, um, what this story tries to accomplish and what Superman as a character really tries to accomplish is being a friend, giving a helping hand, and inspiring hope. It is now time for another edition of the Wild Card Weekly Review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And right now we are in the middle of our Wild Card Weekly Review season uh, as we gear up towards the eventual premiere of Harley Quinn Season 2. Last week, we reviewed the latest season of Netflix's Castlevania animated series, and As you could tell from the intro music, this week we are reviewing another offering from Netflix, that being the live-action adaptation of Lock and Key. This is one of the, uh, I think it is, the newest comic book adaptation coming out of Netflix, Um, and it's great. It's great. (laughs) Uh, We ended up, my, uh, my partner and I ended up binging it over the course of a weekend, really, Uh, and it was a nice you know, um, it was a nice way to escape for a little bit, uh, from all of the craziness going on outside that we could really get invested in the show. Um, basically the premise, if you're unfamiliar with it, is that, uh, the Locke family consisting of mother Nina and her kids, Bodie, Tyler, and Kinsey, uh, are basically on a long road trip to move from Seattle to a small town in Massachusetts into their uh, father's old family house, the Key House. Um, What happened is that their father was killed. Their father, Rendell, was shot to death 
when one of Tyler's classmates named Sam Lesser came to their house asking about keys. So they decide we're going to go, we're going to get out of here, we're going to go back to the key house, and we are going to try and set up life there. Um, and honestly, I, I have been, I was interested because a good, uh, good brother of mine, uh, Jesse was trying to get me into this show or into the comic for a very long time, for at least a year. He's been talking about, it's like, oh man, you got to jump into this. You got to talk about this. You got to read this. And, uh, I was hesitant, um, and I just, you know, I'm reading comics almost on a constant basis, and it's hard to, like, get something in. But um, the show came out, and he was like, you know, the show is just as good as the book. It's not as gory. It's not as dark. It does go to pretty dark places. But um, it is absolutely worth your time. So I was like, you know what? I can do that. Let's do it. So we ended up watching it. I think it's 10 episodes altogether. And overall, it was a great show. Um, it's another, you know home run from netflix if you are in the mood for you know kids versus the supernatural in the same vein of like it of um stranger things if you're trying to get that fix uh this is absolutely something that you can uh do because while they're in the key house the kids uh especially uh starting off with Bodie, are slowly but surely introduced to these keys throughout the house that have different uh, powers. Like there's one that you can basically put a key into a lock or into a keyhole that appears on the back of people's necks and you get to enter kind of their mind. Um, there's a key that can take you anywhere. There's a key that can change your appearance. Like it's, it's crazy. I don't want to give too many spoilers just because I honestly think you should definitely give it a shot. Um, I really got engrossed in the series and now I definitely want to jump into the book. Uh, into the comics and I think it does a really good job opening up the door for a season two um cast members that I want to definitely shout out include um their uncle Duncan who is played by uh Jimmy Olsen from Smallville himself Aaron Ashmore I can't remember the last time that I really uh saw Aaron Ashmore in something so that was uh that was a welcome a welcome surprise uh Sam Lest Sam Lesser, the uh, psychopath classmate, is played by Thomas Mitchell Barnett, and he is fantastic. He's apparently very um, different in the comics. He's a lot less sympathetic here. They really try to um, posit him as someone who is being kind of manipulated. So you get the feels for this kid. Uh, big, big props to, and I know I'm going to butcher this, but I'm just going to say Laysla de Oliveira. I probably said that wrong, and I apologize, but she plays uh, probably one of the most interesting characters in the entire show. Again, I don't want to spoil it, but she is an absolute just force in every scene that she's in. She's fantastic. Really, I mean, the acting across the board is is really, really good. Uh, Jackson Robert Scott plays Bodhi. He played um, the younger brother in It, and he is so fun he's got such great comedic timing he's youthful energy really like brings you in he's very compelling uh darby stanchfield as nina the mother is also fantastic um she really is kind of the linchpin that that brings every everybody in the family together but at the same time she's wrestling with her own demons uh tyler 
uh, played by Connor Jessup, is the older brother, and he goes through his own um, his own arc, and he's really he's really fun to watch. The person that took me a little bit to get into was uh, Kinsey, the sister, played by Amelia Jones. She was a little stiff, you know, through I would say probably like the first third, but once you really start to get into the show. Um, maybe it's me just getting kind of acclimated to her acting, but she gets a lot more comfortable with the character and it's a really, honestly, it's just a fun time. Um, also let me look through this. I'm looking through the, uh, IMDB right now. Uh, Patrice Jones, who plays Scott Cavendish is a, uh, a cinephile and a, uh, big horror fan who is, uh, introduced to Kinsey and kind of brings her into the Savini squad who watch basically like they watch zombie movies and talk about like effects and makeup. They're basically uh, my friends, Jessica and Chris and, and Dustin, of course. And um, it's just fun just watching them. They're trying to make their own horror film and it's just, it's a really, really fun time. So honestly, I really dug Lock and Key. I think it's a great comic adaptation and it's something that especially nowadays with all the, quarantines and lockdowns going on you really don't have an excuse not to watch it if you have netflix so i would definitely check it out it's a fun time it gets pretty dark and a little scary at times but it's a really good watch it does a great job at setting up characters that you care about telling a story that is uh engrossing and really compelling and also doing a great job at um making a really good standalone story while at the same time setting up a solid season two so i would definitely recommend it and yeah that's gonna do it for the weekly review for this week um we're gonna keep keep rolling on until we get to uh harley quinn which i believe will be the second week of april i think it's april 3rd which is like on a friday so um second week of april we will definitely be doing um harley quinn as we go along but first we are gonna hop on over to this week's comics countdown Ooh, welcome back to this week's comics countdown this is the segment of our show where i talk about the comics that i think you should be picking up this week whether it's at your local comic book shop on comiXology or however you get your comics these are the ones i think you should definitely take a look at we'll be talking about each book's title and creative team as well as a brief synopsis of each book and of course every synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices if you have a synopsis voice you'd like me to try out for this segment feel free to request it at Pod on Twitter or Instagram or through email because I'm an old man I still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com but before we get into this week's books we got to take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplained pick of the week of last week and last week honestly was kind of slim pickings there weren't a whole lot of books but one book did stand out and that was Hawkeye Freefall number four um really honestly this book it's been so good uh, they they just they know what they're doing with this character. Matthew Rosenberg has such a great voice for Clint. Um, the art, the art by uh, Otto Schmidt is just fantastic. It's fun. It's dynamic. It really gives a just it gives a whole new life to every single page and every single character. Um, the opening of the book 
involves a fantastic gag that I am surprised has not been done before, or at least I've never seen it done before. So I got to give them props on that. It's such a fun read. This book has been so good. If you haven't been picking this book up, do yourself a favor and fix that ASAP. But that's last week. Let's let's move on to this week. This week, we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books for you to pick up. Um, DC has come back a swinging, and they've got most of the picks this week. And I think there's only one Marvel book this week. I think that's right. Yeah, it's just one Marvel book, and the rest are all DC books. So DC has come back with a vengeance, starting off with Nightwing number 70, written by Dan Jurgens, with art by Ryan Benjamin. Um, this is the first big... Uh, installment of the road to joker war this is the joker coming to bloodhaven and it's pretty interesting sounds pretty interesting so let's jump into the synopsis here how many night wings does it take for one joker to strike to get to the real one four four night wings and that's not even the punchline. How will Rick interact with the Joker when he's not quite sure which one of his two memories is the real one? And exactly how dangerous this clown standing before him is? So I think it's really interesting. Uh, Dan Jurgens is just, he's trying his best with this Rick stuff. Um, it's not especially uh, fun to do this character, um, especially when you really want to write Nightwing dick grayson but um we'll be talking about that a little bit later on in this list but i think it's a really cool idea to put the joker kind of having rick in his crosshairs and hopefully this will be the uh the spark that lights the fire to, that brings us back nightwing next up we have year of the villain hell arisen number four of four written by james tyne in the fourth with art by steve epting um this book uh Honestly, I'm going to let you know, I'm not super interested in the book itself, but I feel like at this point it's kind of required reading, especially heading into some of the big events uh, this year, like 5G, like Death Metal. Um, if you want to know what's happening, you need to be keeping up with this book. So um, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into it. This is it. Lex Luthor has gathered a strike force of villains he's leveled up to be the baddest bad guys around. Captain Cold, Oracle, Solomon Grundy, Black Manta, and Lobo. Each and every one a recipient of one of Lex's dark gifts. But the Batman who laughs has his own army of infected heroes. 666 of them, all transformed into their worst selves. It's a final showdown between two of DC's most iconic villains, all to curry the favor of Perpetua. Whoever wins will take over the multiverse alongside her. Does Lex ascend, or does he get laid low? Does the Batman Who Laughs finally remake the DC Universe in his own image? Either way, life for our heroes will never be the same. So yeah, I have, I'll i be honest with you, I haven't really been in on the Year of the Villain stuff. Um, I don't know, I feel like with all the stuff that's going on, it, looks, it feels kind of like uh, the books are moving on without it, in kind of the same way that Rebirth and Doomsday Clock were. But... Who knows? The uh, 
the books leading up to this, uh, numbers one through three, have been fine. It's just, it's almost reading it more of an, out of necessity than anything, if I'm being honest. But a book that I'm actually really enjoying is Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number nine of 12, written by Matt Fraction with art by Steve Lieber. This book is just, it's so fun. <laughs> this book actually, you know, give you a little peek behind the curtain. Um, this book is what really got me into wanting to include Jimmy in the pitch it for Superman. Um, I've always liked Jimmy as a character, but this book really makes you fall in love with him all over again. If you haven't been picking this up and you want to wait for the trade, totally get it, totally understand. But it's really just a fun read all the way around. And I'm I expect that this issue is going to be no different. So let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here. Jimmy and Jix are on the run, pursued by an intergalactic death force that wants to break up their marriage by any means necessary. If they succeed in offing Jimmy, their prince regent plans to marry Jix and unite their warring empires. But Jimmy Olsen's still busy trying to solve his own murder, or rather, his decoy corpse's murder. It's a typical day for Superman's pal. So it's just, it's fun, it's ridiculous, it's a book that I definitely think you should pick up. A book that is not as fun, but just as ridiculous, and I think you should pick it up just as much, is Deceased Unkillables, number two of three, written by Tom Taylor, with art by Carl Mostert and Trevor Scott. Um, this is a great, great side story. I really like that they are putting a spotlight on characters who we didn't really see in Deceased and were just like, ah, they're probably dead. But I'm glad that they're telling the story, fleshing this out, and I think this is really going to bridge the gap between Deceased and Deceased Dead Planet. And I'm, I just, I love the, uh, the dynamic between Jason and Cassandra. Really, 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 really like it, and I'm excited I'm really excited to pick this up, so this should be good. Let's dive into the synopsis here. With the world ending around them, Red Hood and Batgirl take shelter in the most unlikely place, an orphanage full of children. Will they be able to protect the kids from the impending hordes of the infected streaming out of Gotham City and Bloodhaven? And elsewhere... Deathstroke, Vandal Savage, and some of DC's worst villains battle the apocalypse out as an anti-suicide squad. But a certain wondrous woman may not let them have it their own way. So it looks like uh, Vandal Savage's team is going to get their first big test against Wonder Woman. Not sure how it's going to go, but we'll see. I'm excited to pick this up for sure. Next up, we have... Outlawed, number one. This is the one and only uh, Marvel inclusion from this uh, from this week. So I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, written by Eve Ewing with art by Kim Jacinto. Uh, this is going to kick off the whole uh, Outlawed uh, crossover storyline, which is essentially supposed to eliminate um, teen superheroes. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, solicits for it have really kind of set this up as like this is like an inciting incident on the level of like the first civil war so if they can stick the landing on this i will be really interested to uh to see how this story plays out so let's go ahead and jump into the synopsis here 
exploding from the pages of incoming. In the wake of a devastating tragedy, the United States passes a law that will shake the Marvel Universe to its core. The world has had enough of teen heroes. The crackdown has begun, and the lives of Marvel's next generation will never be the same again. Eve L. Ewing and Kim Jacinto launch a new era in this game-changing event one-shot that will send shockwaves across the Marvel Universe. You won't want to miss this one. So yeah, sounds really interesting, sounds really fun. I'm, uh, I guess fun isn't the right word, but <laughs> I'm interested to see what they do with this for sure. Next up, we have Batman number 91, written by James Tynan IV, with art by George Jimenez, as well as um, Raphael Albuquerque. Really excited. I love Raphael Albuquerque's uh, art. He's so good. He did the art for one of my favorite books of the last decade, which is Huck. If you haven't read that yet, it is absolutely worth your time. It's a really, really cool read. And um, and you've also got George Jimenez on this. And so you've got an all-star team of artists uh, with uh, Ty- James Tynan IV, who has really been on his game from the from the get-go when he took over the book with 80, 86. So I've been really enjoying it, looking forward to seeing how they um, develop further the plans of the designer. So let's dive into the synopsis here. To save Gotham City, Catwoman will have to commit the greatest heist in the city's history. But hot on her trail are the Penguin, the Riddler, a horde of assassins, and the master criminal called the Designer and the most dangerous person standing in her way is the man she's trying to save, Batman. And what complications will will arise from his new sidekick, Harley Quinn? So, um, yeah. <laughs> Pretty self-explanatory. Um, I'm really excited about this. The cover, show, the cover basically says, guest starring Harley Quinn against the threat of a Jokerized GCPD. So it should be fun. Uh, the Joker has also been kind of getting his edge back slowly as we ramp up towards Joker, roar, Joker War. Looking forward to this. And I'm still really intrigued by the designer as a character. Looking forward to seeing what they do with him. But the big book of the week, the book I think you should definitely be picking up, is, of course, the Robin 80th Anniversary 100-page Super Spectacular. Uh, it's a big, big... Uh, big title for this but this is the big uh book that is celebrating 80 years of robin technically it's 80 years of dick grayson but technicalities i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna split hairs over it um because this really looks to be like a celebration of all eras of robin which i'm really excited about the cover that i'm most looking forward to the quote the cover that i'm planning on getting is the i think it's the 2010s cover and it's basically got all of the robins on there really really excited about this it should be a fun time and i'm glad that we're finally giving the boy wonder his due especially uh seeing as how robin as a character and as a role seems to be kind of fading into the background when it comes to batman comics as of late so really big things lots of um lots of writers and artists on this just to name a few we've got 
on writing duties, Marv Wolfman, Chuck Dixon, uh, Tim Seeley, Tom King, Jug Winnick, James Tynan, uh, Robbie Thompson, Pete J. Tomasi, and others. On art, we've got Scott McDaniel, we've got Mikkel Janine, Kenneth Rockefort, uh, Javi Fernandez, Nicholas Scott, Dustin Yuyan, among others. It's an all-star team for sure. And I'm really excited to pick this up, so let's dive into the synopsis here. DC Comics celebrates Robin the Boy Wonder's 80th anniversary in style, with an all-star creative team representing each iteration of the iconic character across eight decades of history. From the high-flying adventures of Dick Grayson to the tragedy of Jason Todd, the enthusiasm of Tim Drake and the arrogance of Damian Wayne, the persistence of Stephanie Brown, and the rebelliousness of Carrie Kelly. The mantle of Robin has been worn by many, but always represents one thing, a hero. So... Again, this is a 100-page super spectacular, so expect lots of great stories. Um, I saw somewhere that it looks like the original team of Grayson, that being uh, Tim Seeley, Tom King, and um, Mikkel Janine, are going to be telling a Grayson-era story, and I love that. Grayson is it's just so good. If you haven't read Grayson, do yourself a favor. Read Grayson. But um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It, it looks like... A big old celebration of a character who really is one of the most important characters ever. I still, I will say this always, and I, th I still hold it true. You can fight me if you want. Uh, Dick Grayson is the most important comics book, comic book character to be created ever. Period. That's just me. That's what I believe. But I really do think that Dick Grayson is the most important character, and I'm glad that they're finally, you know, letting him and the other Robins have their day in the sun. So, to recap, we have Nightwing number 70, Year of the Villain, Hell Arisen, number 4 of 4, Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number 9 of 12, Deceased, Unkillables, number 2 of 3, Outlawed, number 1, Batman, number 91, and Robin, 80th Anniversary, 100-page Super Spectacular. I mean, come on, with a title like that, who wouldn't buy it? Also, one quick thing I really, uh, I, I want to mention this because I think it's important. Um, we mentioned earlier there have been a lot of, uh, in like the news segment, that there have been a lot of um, closures, a lot of... Uh, cities kind of locking down public uh, venues and stuff like that and right now the um, local comic book shop scene is going to be hit probably one of the hardest because it is a local business regardless of whether it's you know getting shipments from diamond or all that stuff it is still a local business and it still relies on patronage to keep its doors open this is going to be a tough time for them so if you are able to get your comics from your local comic book shop please continue to um to buy from there they are going to be having a hard time my shop specifically is in los angeles which has been a uh gone under multiple lockdowns across different uh, different subsections of the city and of the county. So um, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to go to the comic book shop and I'm going to buy my comics from there because I want to make sure that they stay open in this hard time. Um, especially if your comic shop is able to do like curbside pickup, uh, if you're able to do any kind of delivery from them, like 
make it worth it. These guys are going to be hit the hardest and they really, um, this is going to be a time to support your local businesses. So definitely, definitely do that. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening all the way through. I really do appreciate it. And um, thank you for 100 episodes. <laughs> Honestly, like every single time I check out, you know, the figures, the viewing figures, the stats um, from views and listens, like it really, it blows me away. It really does. I am just so, so appreciative and so grateful for everyone who listens, whether you were with us from the beginning, whether you jumped on somewhere in the first 100 episodes. Um, it's It really is a pleasure and a privilege to be able to rant in your ear about comics. Um, I haven't done this in a while, but I wanted to kind of shout this out. Um, we have listeners not just in the U.S., but like all over the globe. We've got listeners in Spain. We've got listeners in Germany and Australia. I'm like running down the list here. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, Brazil, in Sweden, in Canada, you know, in Ukraine, Sri Lanka, Japan, like we are a global podcast. And that just blows my mind all the time. Um, here in the US, cities like uh, here in Pasadena, Charlotte, North Carolina, um, Dallas, Texas, Albuquerque, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, shout out to good brother Canaan over there. Uh, Tucson, Arizona, uh, Vegas, everywhere. Like, it really is honestly a pleasure to be able to do this podcast every week and to um, just be able to talk about stuff that I'm passionate about and stuff that I love. So thank you very much for 100 episodes. March is a big month for Geek Explained. It's kind of weird amid all of this, you know, global pandemic and craziness and stuff. Uh, we had both our two-year anniversary as well as our uh, 100th episode within a week of each other. Like it's, it's crazy. And I am absolutely thankful for everything that you do as listeners to get the word out, to help us, uh, reach more listeners just like you, uh, feel free to give us, uh, ratings and reviews on iTunes. Um, really does help us out giving us, you know, five-star ratings really helps get us kind of up there into the, uh, orbit of listeners just like you. And if I start to get, um, Apple reviews, I will absolutely, uh, or reviews on Apple podcasts, I will absolutely read them on air. So if you want to have your review read on here, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you give us that five-star review i will absolutely read your review right here um but i'm just i'm so thankful you guys are amazing i actually let me pull this up because um i'm looking to i'm always excited to get uh, mail from you guys. The Geeksplain mailbag is always open. Feel free to send emails to geeksplain at gmail.com. And I just want to shout this out to um, listener Aaron Arantia. I'm sorry if that if I mispronounce your name and I apologize, but um, Aaron sent me an email and I'm really excited to read it out here. So um, says, hey man, really been enjoying your content, especially your pitches for Star Wars and Spider-Man. With that said, I think a Batman Beyond one would be a great opportunity to pitch. I'm curious to see how you would approach this story. Who would you cast? Would it be linear or non-linear storytelling? Would you focus on an origin story or a Batman already two to three years in his career? I love that. So first of all, Aaron, thank you for writing in. Really, really love it. Um, 
And that will definitely be on the list. Uh, this Superman pitch it has really, um, really gotten the creative juices flowing, and I'm really, um, I'm, I may be in a pitch a pitching mood. So you may see this uh, Batman Beyond pitch it in the near future. Um, I would love to tackle that. I grew up with Batman Beyond. Uh, that was the premier Batman show when I was uh, when I was growing up, and so I would love to put something like that together. So I will definitely put it on the list and you will see a Batman beyond pitch it. I would say it's safe. It's a safe bet within this, uh, within this next volume of geek explained for sure. And that really kind of brings us to, uh, the end of geek explained volume two. It has been an incredible ride. I have loved every single bit of it. It's been a great learning process as really, um, every single week putting this podcast together has been, I appreciate all of you immensely for listening to us, uh, for giving us two solid years of, um, an amazing learning experience and learning how to build a podcast, uh, by geeks for geeks, building it up from the ground and kind of learning as I go. So I appreciate your patience and helping me to make this podcast better. Um, like I said, you can always reach out to me through email or through social media. I love interacting with you guys. Um, I'll put up polls sometimes to kind of um, influence what we'll talk about, how we uh, go with um, certain topics. So definitely give us a follow. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. And this is it. This is it for volume two. Uh, volume three is up next. We're heading into year three, and I'm really excited about it. Um, I will be honest with you. I just want to be completely honest and upfront. Um, I'm not sure if we will be taking a break next week. Uh, things have been kind of crazy. As I said uh, earlier in the podcast, um, I basically got laid off from my restaurant job for now, so money's a little tight. I'm trying to figure out things and make odds uh, make ends meet. So, um, if I don't have a podcast up next week, do not fear. The podcast is not over. I will just be taking a mental break to, um, to kind of recharge, get myself ready for volume three. Um, but if not, if I do end up putting up an episode next week, it will be the debut of volume three of the podcast. I've got some really awesome stuff in the pipeline coming up on this next volume uh with maybe a new logo so um really excited about it again thank you so much for two years thank you so much for 100 episodes and here's to the next two years here's to the next 100 episodes so for now uh for geek explain this is eric azana thank you very much for listening thank you very much for 100 episodes still blows my mind and we will see you next time